I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch the big birthday boy open this big special birthday boy present. birthday boy most of this movie is about it's about birthdays it's about it's about uh, birthday boys it's about family togetherness it's about how uh, michael douglas looks both uh weirdly uh, perfect in a suit but also that his head is trying to explode out of one um <laughs> it's good uh yeah, yeah I, no, where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. And we're in our third week of the big game month featuring no actual games where we cover movies with the word games in the titles. Don't judge us. Do you have a podcast? Fuck off. <laughs> um, is that too intense? Now, I know we said that this week was going to be funny games. But let me tell you something. That was all part of the game. This is part of your present <laughs> where we we red herring you and trick you and go, we're going to do funny games. And then ha, we're doing the game instead. Yeah, I think uh, everyone should go and list uh, this podcast on Wikipedia under uh, notable ARGs. <laughs> yeah. 100 percent uh because we tricked you and uh you know thankfully it wasn't a funny games trick because if it's a funny games trick we're going to jail <laughs> uh, those funny well they got away with it i don't know if you guys know this about the film funny games yeah spoiler for funny games uh not so funny yeah that's so a funny um, yeah, but we're we're doing 1997's The Game, which is David uh, Fincher's third movie. It's the first one I th- that we've covered on this podcast, uh, or as we like to call him, uh, starting right now, uh, Davy Finchie, uh, which Finchie. he loves. You, you know, like Davy Finchie's the type of dude that if you saw him on the street in his uh, in his baseball cap pulled down almost over his eyes and his black t shirt, you went, "Yo, Davy Finchie." He would be like, what's up, my friends? He'd be like, how did you know? I love when people give me new nicknames, especially you- strangers. <laughs> He's like, you know what? I got to level with you. Most fans try to give me one nickname. Sometimes they approach one and a half. You came up with two that rhyme. Um, do you sort want of- to be in my next movie? <laughs> Uh, it, it, I imagine the next movie would be a snuff film. Uh, yeah, it's it's Mank Two, <laughs> getting manky. <laughs> Mank Two booze control. <laughs> oh, he gets manky at bedtime. <laughs> you wouldn't like me when I'm manky. Uh, if you gave me a million dollars right now to tell you, tell me what the. If, if I tell you what the movie Mank was about, I've forgotten. I it's feel like it's something about Hollywood screenwriter, famous alcoholic. Okay, great. My that worked well with Brian Cranston uh, portraying uh, Trumbo. So mm-hmm. he was so deep. kooky. He sat in, in in bathtubs. Let's do a month of uh, movies about Hollywood writers in the forties that everyone doesn't like. We'll do Mank. <laughs> Trumbo, the Majestic. I'm sure there's another one. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, Downfall. I guess he wasn't a Hollywood writer, but he was a writer that was famously unpopular. Yeah, he wrote a book in the 40s. 
that it was famous, very unpopular after that book. Oh yeah, you think you think Trumbo got blacklisted? <laughs> this guy, you can't say his name anymore. You can't name your kids after him. Like you can name your kid Trumbo. <laughs> Not without a few eye raises, but like, yeah. it's not illegal. Go do it. German doctors hate this one weird trick, and it's um, starting a two-front war, one of which is against the Russians. <laughs> uh, a lot of people died. Uh, yeah, but we're doing the game, and it, kind of a weird, you know, kind of a weird, um, I think, first Fincher movie, because Peter, I, I, I imagine, like, I'm a... David Fincher was really the first director I, like, took notice of. Like, when I say took notice, like, I always say you, like, hey, if I saw Steven Spielberg's name in front of credits, uh, I knew, oh, this is going to be a movie I like because, like, I like Jurassic Park and I like D.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, but I, I didn't really quite get, like, Steven Spielberg's directorial style as a kid. It was just like, oh, this guy makes good movies. And I think when I did notice directors names, you know, up until I was like a teenager, it's not like I understood what their job was on the movie set. It wasn't like Best Boy where I still am not 100% sure. But I didn't like I just knew like this one makes movies that other you know they'd say it in previews. It was always like in some ways, like a directorial style uh, was was a marketing gimmick. It was like you know from the director of so and so, and my you know my brain would go, I like so and so, so I'll probably like such and such. And uh, I think it was probably Fight Club, which came out when I was like you know I don't know fourteen or fifteen, uh, which is a movie that we talked about trying to figure out a way to do on the show. I've watched it in like ten years. For a while, I called it my my favorite movie, um, and I think it, it has it's one of those movies that. I think a lot of people like myself have a complicated relationship uh, with just because it's a movie that I I sort of still unabashedly love, but it's also been taken over by the worst people in the world who have taken the very wrong message. I think it'd be uh, great to do a a month that was just entirely uh, college dorm room poster movies. Yeah. And do... I I would love to do Boondock Saints if we did Boondock Saints and Overnight together. Yeah, we've talked about that for a long time. I love that idea. I also love um, the idea of doing like a Donnie Darko, like movies that kind of like, uh, or even a Requiem for a Dream, like movies or that Scar- I would do Scarface, even though it's a movie I don't really like that much. But I, you know, it would I've be fascinating. It would be fascinating to talk about. I've never seen Scarface. Did you know? It'd be, that? It'd be a good episode. Um, I mean, you're 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 fine <laughs> until we do the episode. Well, not if we do an episode. Then I gotta watch it, Peter. Uh, but yeah, I like I. I Fight Club is just a movie that I stopped talking about among people because, A, I feel like when I first saw Fight Club, uh, I still remember getting the screener of it at the video store I worked at. And that's how I watched it for the first time, like before it came out on video. But I missed it in theaters like a lot of people. And so I was – I know uh, I was definitely one of the people among my friend group when I was like a sophomore in high school that was like hard driving that as like a – like a – at least as a cult classic among, like, high schoolers in Bismarck, North Dakota. You know, the amount of, like, everyone needs to watch Fight Club moments I have. And I, you know, I you know, at this point, part of the reason I don't talk about it that much, again, is just because everyone, like, Fight Club has reclaimed its, like, probably top 20, you know, top 20 list on the IMDb's greatest. And you have all, all the worst film bros, you know, that think it's like, yeah, when men were men. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta fight each other, um, and and but like but 
Well, well, you know, we should definitely do Fight Club because I think it's still a fantastic movie that's definitely worth talking about both the, the how good it actually is and, and the way it's kind of been taken over by some of the worst aspects of our culture. But that was a movie where I didn't know who David Fincher was. I did had not seen Seven yet. I had seen this movie. I'll talk about that in a second. But I was like obsessed with the way Fight Club looked like it was it was a movie that I walked away going I want to be a director and for a while like that was like writing and directing was something I you know mildly pursued uh in in late college or late high school and early college but it was because of David Fincher like when you watched Fight Club you're like I'm seeing like someone's stamp and vision on a screen and one that like I just haven't quite seen in in movies before and so um you know when I went so after seeing Fight Club I went and watched Seven pretty quickly after that, and I became obsessed with that movie too. Like both of those movies, all of my early incarnations of like, here's my top, you know, 50 or 25 movies of all time. I think Seven and Fight Club for a very long time remained in the top like 15 or 20. Yeah, Fincher is a, I think, particularly for men, but not exclusively for men, is a very attractive. Very attractive uh, director to get behind because he tends to make movies about serious subjects and he has these movies and it's 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 very similar to the attraction that people have to Christopher Nolan movies that I that, that I have to Christopher Nolan movies, which is that like his his um his, his lead characters and, and Christopher Nolan's lead characters tend to be uh, obsessives in one specific craft who are very professional at their job, who um are uh they let all the other parts of their life kind of fall apart to aggressively pursue this one piece of their life and uh they can often be uh their protagonists can often be sort of emotionally cold and i feel like men see some sort of like um a, a lot of men and some women see like a, a sort of idealized version of masculinity in that uh, yeah. However, that's not really what attracts me to Christopher Nolan movies or to David Fincher movies. That's just like in my head, the sort of armchair psychologist reason that like you, you see like uh, 17 year old, uh, you know, burgeoning film bros who would never watch Le Jeté, uh, but absolutely are obsessed with Inception and will spend hours analyzing like the emotional impact of the movie and how, and how the technical prowess of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, but because like it's approachable to them in a sense that these are sort of like these 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 very um, uh, staid sort of cold protagonists. And I think Fincher, though, uh, has shaken that up more than Christopher Nolan has. Christopher Nolan, you can kind of track that across almost all of his movies, except for like Interstellar <laughs> with uh, with. With David Fincher, he was like subverting that trope or uh, making women be the the um, the uh, performers of that trope uh, before yeah, anybody I mean, could definitely really catch has, to his game. He he definitely has more movies than Christopher Nolan with a with a female protagonist in that he has uh, more than zero. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he has Alien Three and Gone Girl. I would say uh, Panic Room. 
Panic Room. And uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. All of those sort of are Fincher archetypes, but placed into the worldview of a, of a woman um, and, you know, to varying degrees of success. But those are like, I kind of I kind of love like almost every David Fincher movie I've seen. Um, the yeah. one that I really need to get back to is Alien 3, which I think is like a perfect We Love to Watch movie. Yeah, I love um, Alien. And the reason I wanted to get this one in the mix is because... One of well, our... there's not that many movies that fit with our theme. Let's just be <laughs> that's true. Let's be transparent. That's true. <laughs> um, the reason that I wanted to cover this for the show before any other Fincher uh, is because it fit in the theme, uh, but also because this is a very good We Love to Watch movie because it's un- an underappreciated movie by Fincher that absolutely demonstrates all of his skill and capacity. And you may not be as familiar with it, or you may have you may have loved it in the late '90s, early 2000s, but haven't seen it in 20 years, um, which I it think reminds- makes it a good a good candidate to do on the show. A hundred percent. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like, if we're talking Christopher Nolan as a comparison point, um, like Insomnia, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, it, it's everyone loved Memento and then everyone I think was excited to go see Insomnia. And I know a lot of people left that movie feeling like, oh, that's not what I was expecting based on my experience with Memento. And then obviously people like pick back up on him a little bit with um with Batman Begins and the Prestige and that kind of stuff. But uh, I think it's the same thing with Fincher. Like, Alien 3 was famously not liked all that much when it came out. Seven was a huge hit. Like, one of the few New Line cinema movies that made over $100 million. It impacted his ability to actually get a much higher budget for this movie because he had tried to make this before Seven. Uh, And... Uh, and then, you know, people liked this when it came out, but it was kind of overtaken as like the one he did in between Fight Club and Seven. And I do think, though, like even though both Christopher Nolan and David Fincher, I, I, they have a comparison point in that they're kind of known as like like uh, technical uh, perfectionists when it comes to how they shoot their movies. And it's, I mean, not surprising because their movies are absolutely gorgeous to look at. I remember reading stuff about Fight Club where, like, he shot, you know, in, in a Kubrickian style, like, three times as much film as a normal, like, movie that length. Uh, because he's such a, you know, quote unquote perfectionist. And that's a reputation that, you know, Kubrick, one of my favorite directors, and a lot of, unfortunately, again, Clockwork Orange would really fit in our mix, by the way, too, as, like, a movie that I, I I still like, but it's definitely sometimes overtaken by the worst people that like that movie. Absolutely. Uh, um, but I do think that, like, Nolan does have a, a coldness to his movies that uh, it's not – I don't mean that disparagingly, but it is different than Fincher. Like, I, I think Fight Club is, uh, is so much about how, like, the allure of masculinity is a, is a fiction. And, uh, you know, Seven is kind of the same way. Like, Brad Pitt is the, you know, the the, the Abercrombie and Fitch husband who's, you know, I, I'm, you know, I do the cop job and I'm a man and stuff like that. And, like, he is constantly trying to, you know, he, he's, he's a headstrong idiot a lot of the movie and uh, who means well. Well, Morgan Freeman has a, a little more nuanced uh, idea of the world and masculinity and familial relationships and general relationships and doing the cop job and everything else. And like, you know, Brad Pitt ends up paying in a price for trying to be um, kind of a, a more 
a more uh, uh, st- stereotypical version of of masculinity. Um, and I think you could even say like this is a movie about a uh, you know a Wall Street type, which is perfect. How they you know agreed is good. I've poured all my life into money and my job, even though that killed my father. Uh, and I've destroyed most of my relationships to live this cold life of success. But it, this movie has like the twist in this movie, which which we'll get to, is that it has an incredibly gooey center about like uh, love and acceptance and forgiveness and a bunch of other stuff. So like I do think that Fincher has always been doing something a little more interesting with his even his like masculine protagonist and that it's almost about breaking down the the codified version of like stereotypical masculine. I, I completely agree. I mean, and Fight Club is uh, is one of his first movies that really like broke through in the pop culture in in that way. Um, whereas this movie made a little bit of money. Um, yeah. It, wa- it wasn't a huge success. Uh, it was able to because of seven success. They were actually going to make it before seven. Yep. Um, and then Brad Pitt <clears throat> was ready and they went and made it. Well, Brad Pitt said he would do uh, would do seven. And so they got that fast tracked. Yeah. Fincher was really into having. Uh, Brad Pitt, which obviously a friendship that is that has stayed there because they've done, you know, Fincher hasn't made that many movies. I think he's still under 10, but, you know, uh, Pitt's been in three of them. Yeah. And um, that he that early in his career would uh, try and subvert the idea of these sort of masculine men and like uh, social network is about how pathetic those pursuits are. Whereas uh, I think. I think The Prestige is one of, like, the greatest thrillers of the past, like, 50 years. And The Prestige in no way interrogates the fact that these two men are essentially destroying themselves for this hobby. It's just like, well, you know, this craft has turned them a little bit cuckoo and they're not going to stop doing this hobby. (laughs) Instead, it's like... There's a woman who gets caught up in it and has her life destroyed by these these two men, and yet the movie has almost nothing to say about it. Like, the, Christopher Nolan's flaws are, are 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 very often, I think, blind to him. Um, whereas in uh, in Fincher, he was like immediately aware of all these issues, and it's even showing in in projects he's produced and only and, and only partially directed like uh Mindhunter because uh in in the Mindhunter series it's very much about how this uh this this lead character is sort of an obsessive about true crime and is like almost idolizes tra- people like Charles Manson to the degree that he considers them like almost celebrities like he gets like chills when he thinks about getting to interview Charles Manson and um it it, it it's very much it, it, it's it's very much concerned with the fact that like this man's obsession is very sick but it's an obsession that if you're watching a true crime show on netflix you probably share at least some of his dna <laughs> not to the extent that you're going out and interviewing killers and you know being an fbi profiler but uh fincher has been subverting his concept of, of what these sort of masculine alpha males are since you started creating them (laughs) yeah that's that's such a good call out because the thing about nolan and what's i i like a lot of early nolan and i have been i think frustrated by the um by some of his later movies because they feel all craft with almost no 
personality. But I think even the best Nolan movies like Insomnia and Memento and The Prestige, I think you're right. Like the reason why film bros get attracted to those movies specifically is because they are presenting this like idea of these, yeah, these perfectionist men who are obsessed with a project and like, you know, give themselves to it and destroy relationships around them and stuff like that. And to your point on the prestige, it's not really like investigating that beyond just depiction. And so I think it's, even though I don't think like, I'm not, I'm not judging like, um, Christopher Nolan because a bunch of you know people that also have a lot of other bad viewpoints tend to gravitate toward his movies. It's not Christopher Nolan's fault and I don't think it comes out in the movies but there isn't that other thing that like uh, can I think make people second guess or see different intentions there where I think for Fincher there is like on the surface it's very easy for people to see why oh here's you know Here's uh, Brad Pitt's character in Seven, and God, he's so awesome, and oh, he gets so fucked in the end. Like, if that's all you see, it's a amazingly crafted thriller and, like, you know, tense and gory and beautifully shot and plotted, you know, with tons of surprises. If you never want to go deeper in there, um, yeah, you that's what you're going to get out of it. Same thing, Fight Club is the obvious example, right? If you think, like, women suck, society sucks, men just need to get back to being men and punching each other and blowing up shit, like, that all looks gorgeous in the movie, and, uh, and you can just stop there. Uh, but the thing with Fincher, unlike Nolan, I do think that there's always something else underneath that subverts the surface level. And if it's not, like, particularly subtle. I don't think it's secret. I just think if you're not willing to – if you're watching these movies and not interrogating anything besides that looked fucking cool, dude, you, you know, you're going to walk away from Fight Club going, like, I want to be like Tyler Durden. But – Christopher Nolan, I, I just like – I don't think has that same uh, just below the surface subversion in a lot of those archetypes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, and I feel like that's what makes Fincher more interesting because while yeah. while I would love to cover some Nolan someday, um, he has a, a particularly toxic fandom. Um, yeah. And I don't – if we're – if I just want to talk about the prestige, I might not necessarily want to talk about uh, – you know, film bro, uh, Nolan fandom. And uh, one of the things I do like about Nolan is like a quick defense is that like you can kind of like you can kind of like uh, he kind of creates these like modernist objects that you can stare yeah. at and like project your own experiences on. Whereas um, I think, you know, he has an expert an expert grasp of uh, time and space and he has an expert grasp of the technical skill but he very often creates these movies with characters that you're supposed to sort of um fill with yourself and yeah. um that's not true of like interstellar which is a deeply emotional movie and has like characters that are like deeply emotional and talk about like love openly like interstellar is kind of a, a deviation in his career but like um I'm, but like most of his movies especially his favorites the characters are sort of like handsome obsessive blanks and that is not yeah. true of david fincher's movies where david fincher wants you to know how he how he feels about those characters and he, and he expects you to pay the fuck attention like at no point i don't know if there's a single human being on the planet except for maybe mark zuckerberg who came out of uh <laughs> a, a social network and was like man that looked cool 
was doing all that coding that guy made a billion dollars yeah i I cannot wait to be like him (laughs) (laughs) but the game is is a movie that's very interesting because it's taking an archetype that you already know and it's allowing i think without his real knowledge because michael douglas in interviews about this is just like yeah it was a cool picture i made um, he does like, like it though. He talk he talks about it as being one of his favorite movies because yeah. he just thought that yeah, which which is cool. I mean, I, I don't Michael think he Douglas saw it as a famous version of Gordon Gecko or anything though. Yeah, I mean, look, here's the things you gotta know about Michael Douglas. He's been, I mean, he started life uh, producing. Like he he was a producer on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest before he ever starred in a movie. Um, so he's you know Hollywood royalty. He's been around forever. That's the first thing you need to know about michael douglas and the second thing you need to know this guy's eating a lot of pussy (laughs) (laughs) he's a man who's who it almost killed him yeah he's a man who you know he has earned his place he has put into the work he has he has uh he did production gigs he didn't just jump on uh, you know the fact that his dad was a, a famous no famous actor and also probably sexually assaulted natalie wood um that we didn't we his he didn't just jump on Kirk Douglas's yeah. fame uh, and get yeah. down to it. He got out there and he made his own movies and he ate pussy whenever uh, he saw fit. And um, you know you got to hand it to him. He's a hard worker, especially at he's a hard worker, and he didn't do it for himself. He made it very clear. Yeah, when he when he came out to the world, I think like 2006, and was like, just to let everyone know, I've eaten so much pussy that i barely survived everyone knew that like hey if mike douglas says uh that he's eating a lot of pussy that dude's eating a lot of pussy because he's a stand-up guy who's been in the industry yeah forever and other than eating pussy he's also done some acting yeah in between I mean, in the limit. He had his I wife mean, beside yeah. him. He's like, he brought out Catherine Zeta-Jones. It's like, <laughs> just to let you know, my wife supports me on this. I ate so much pussy, it almost killed me. She's just nodding. Absolutely. He's 70. She she held his hand and said, we ate so much pussy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we did. <laughs> And and here's the thing, he's so beloved. Normally when you bring your wife out for a press conference about eating so much pussy it almost kills you, yeah. you have to resign from something. He didn't. Yeah. He just went back into his house and everyone went, Okay. Well yeah. good, good luck out there. And Are you actually, still eating pussy? And he's he actually he um started a charity to raise awareness about eating too much pussy and he yeah. has bumper stickers that said, Did I eat the pussy or did the pussy eat me? <laughs> Almost got eaten by the pussy. Thank God. Thank God for modern medicine. I just like. Just I again. I I want to okay, be very okay. clear. He I don't know me. the science behind whether, as far as I know, what he was saying was medically true. And obviously, cancer of any sort of serious. Very I sad. Just, and I'm only making jokes because he survived throat cancer. Oh yeah. If he would have died for this, this would be. I mean, we'd say the same things, but we'd say it solemnly. Um. <laughs> We would talk about him like we talk about Gold Star families. But can you imagine, like, he just, he, he's a, he was like 68. And everyone's like, oh my God, Michael Douglas has cancer. And he's like, yeah, from eating all that pussy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, is this a bit, Mike? No, no, no. 
No, the doctors told me. I just I've had my tongue in a lot of places. I, and his his con, his conjecture was that he performed so much cunnilingus that so he much. that he got HPV, which led yeah. to. I don't know the science cancer. of that. I'm not a doctor. That I don't think be, he's a doctor. Either. <laughs> I'm just saying I don't know if that's been like endorsed by a doctor. Also, to be clear. If that is true, you don't have to announce that you've eaten so much pussy. Yeah. It could just happen the one time, yeah. from what I understand. Yeah. <laughs> do you think the fact that do you think the fact that he was probably a smoker for a couple decades had anything to do with it? Peter, how dare you? <laughs> sorry, 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 I'm not a doctor. Yeah, he was smoking those pussies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now it sounds like he was playing. He's got grandkids. He's got grandkids that have to be like, did dad go on television and talk about eating pussy? (laughs) That's the weird thing about being an actor who's like famously horny on screen. And there's also. Oh, he is like famous for being like a horn dog on screen. And also like somehow both a sex symbol and an attractive man and the grossest human being you can imagine (laughs) like and part of that is just like you know how can you not like he's like he's not gross in real life but like it sounds like he's a very nice it sounds like he's a very nice partner he's when he is it's it's like all the stories i hear about him is that he's a very like good father and a good friend and like he's reliable but, like, sorry, bud, I've seen Veil Attraction and Basic Instinct and Wall Street and The War of the Roses. You spent so many years just being like, my whole thing is I want money and I want to have just gross, sloppy, sweaty sex in the hot sun. <laughs> and do it in a way that's kind of angry at everyone. And he, <laughs> like, like, and he, like, it, it was involved in, like, political projects that were, like, left-leaning. And then, and then he made a movie uh, based on a Michael Crichton novel about, did you know men could be sexually harassed oh, in yeah, the workplace? I, I totally and, forgot he was in Disclosure. And it can happen in VR. It can happen to Michael Douglas. I don't Famous Slimy Hornball. And, you know, it can still be unwanted even if... She finds out. <laughs> He's like, uh, you tell me, the guy who, uh, I mean, if I look at him, I'm guessing in 20 years, he's going to be dead from pussy eating. <laughs> you telling me this guy could get sexually harassed? <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't think so. Don't uh, think this, so. Is, this, this is, of course, Disney's favorite uh, cancel, our famous canceled review series, Mickey Mouse Reviews, Michael Douglas movie. <laughs> 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 That guy puts his dick everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. 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 Now, if we had done this during a a Chrissy Noli movie, if we didn't even set a Chrissy Noli movie, we would get death threats. That's the difference. Ultimately. Ultimately. I mean, we may still get death threats just just because, but um, the point is... Yeah, we made yeah, the, the point is that uh, Michael Douglas ate a lot of pussy and it almost he ate a lot him. of pussy, but he survived it. And that's I think I think when you're telling people like someone comes to you and is like, "Hey, I've heard that there's some dangers involved in eating the pussy." I think just you know Michael Douglas was ultimately fine. Yeah, like do you think that in the, in the scene in Fatal Attraction where he's like putting Glenn Close up on the counter and is like <laughs> just going at her like a wild dog? And she's loving it. She's loving every every second of it. Um, and it's an Adrian Lynn movie, so it goes on three minutes too long. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> do you think that during that moment you were like, man, this guy is just as dangerous as Tom Cruise is doing his stunts in Mission Impossible? <laughs> what if that movie was 20 minutes long and while he's going downtown on uh, Glenn Close after three to five minutes, he grabs his throat and goes, <laughs> ah! It got me and just falls over. And it, I mean, it's nominated for best short at the Academy Awards, but it's a different. It really is a different vision, I think. Overall, do you have any tea with honey? Oh no, for my pussy throat. <laughs> Someone give me my pussy throat medication. <laughs> Grabbing it like the henchman from Dumb and Dumber. My pussy throat. <laughs> In slow motion, and all the pills spill on the ground. <laughs> he died? Should I tell his wife? <laughs> uh, it, would, it would have saved one rabbit if that's the way the movie ended. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it depends on what point in the movie that happens, I guess. <laughs> I, I assumed it was quick onset pussy poisoning. <laughs> Just immediately? <laughs> Wait, why isn't the next showing of this movie till 9.30? They just have a sit for an hour and 40 minutes? <laughs> I The worst part about it is in that interview, he has this, this look on his face like, ain't I a stinker? Like, and I'll do it again. Like, what the fuck, man? I mean, yeah, you don't have... Look, I'm not trying I, to be ageist about it, but, no, but, but I also don't want to picture a 68-year-old Michael Douglas. Going down on anybody. I also don't want to picture, like I said, he's kind of scuzzy. So, like, again, just in depiction, not in real life. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I, but I don't want to picture, yeah. No. Yeah. And I think what's what's fun about uh, the game to redirect away from that topic is that. Um, again, uh, last thing I'll say is that, like, it's not my fault that he started hypothesizing ways he could have got throat cancer, <laughs> cancer on national television. Again, it's not our fault that we're yeah. merely. We're really the reporting conjecture. the facts. Yeah, we're like the Wall Street Journal. That's so true. I didn't even think about it that way. That's definitely a better comparison. I, sorry, I didn't think about Star it that Wars. way because it's a stupid way to think. Oh, okay. You know, that's that's part of a uh, partnership, give and take. <laughs> I said something, you said it was fucking stupid. We're moving on. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, and so, fuck you is the <laughs> name of the school I operate under. <laughs> Psych. Uh, yeah, so the game. Yeah, but this. So this. How are you walk back from that? We, well, so weirdly, uh, when I was just a, a lad dreaming of eating pussy someday, um, I saw this in theaters <laughs> on a boat uh, in Ellis Island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said, "Land is that dry land and wet pussy?" <laughs> Who can say the God road goes? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I saw this in theaters though, and it was so it was my first um, David Fincher movie, and I I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about David Fincher. I don't think I saw previews. It was one of those. My dad was like, uh, "Hey, you want to go see a movie?" And it was about the age that like he was st- occasionally would start to take me to go see rated R movies if like he had read like the, it was ninety seven, so like he was going on the internet and seeing like why it was rated certain things and was like oh you, you can come see this so i saw it in theaters and i i know i was not psyched about seeing it beyond the fact that like it was a rated r movie and that i was seeing a movie um 
because it, you know, I was fourteen. Like seeing the guy in the, an old guy in the office building having sad memories of his dad. At first, I was kind of like, "Well, you know, at least I'm out seeing a movie." <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, I mean, it won me over very, very quick. Like uh, I, I loved uh, conspiracy-minded stuff in general. And is that because so, a packed theater was actually smaller than the number of people that would be in your house? Uh, yeah, I was like, "This, this, I can barely move." <laughs> In this theater, it's nice to stretch out. Also, uh, I went to go get popcorn, and they hadn't run out. That's not a thing. No, it is at home, though. Oh, at home. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You can, you can uh, that happens all the like time. That. Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I, uh, I was won over pretty quickly by it, uh, and it, like, it, it is a movie that um, Peter and I were talking about before we recorded, like. It is it is a movie that is very light on complications or themes. And it it's a movie about essentially like incidents and trying to it really is like an old pot boiler of like, okay, what could possibly going be going on? And it gives you all of these like plausible red herrings throughout that leads you to think that you're starting to crack it before it it moves like it's it is so masterfully done because it does set up it's not it's not leading you from point A to point B for all these red herrings. What it's doing a lot of times is walking you past stuff so that you are using maybe like the 5% connection to make you feel like oh wait, I think I got this. But it's doing that on purpose so that it's not like because if it just led you from point A to point B, you would go, I know what this movie's doing. There's still 40 minutes left. I haven't figured out shit. Instead, it is like trying to get you to make a slight leap, which it does very successfully, so that you feel you're staying one step ahead of a movie that is fundamentally designed for you to not stay any steps ahead of. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the thing that's fun about it is I've seen this movie before. Yeah. And I somewhat remembered it. And I still could not remember if the gameplay company was actually a, a massive con or if that was just part of the the overall puppet master game which by the way like if you don't mind i'd like to interrupt here and kind of walk through i did a little bit of research uh actually i mean like you're a- talking so you're you're not technically interrupting me at all uh, yeah oh, well thank you <laughs> um the puppet master uh terminology i just used uh is uh terminology that is sort of codified in the concept of uh ARGs so ARGs um essentially um args args as we call them uh mm. as pirates would call them um ARGs are sort of a brother to uh video games, they're a brother to LARPing, they're a brother to virtual reality games, um to RPGs. They're sort of like a, 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 a all these things kind of blend together, but ARGs is really focused on like the mixed media experience. Sometimes there's live events, sometimes it's just like you get a bunch of weird emails or letters. Sometimes you go yeah. to a website and then you navigate a puzzle on the website and then you get sent to another website and then another piece of mixed media media might come in at that point that was a huge the kind of augmented reality um like movie promotional tool was like huge once the internet like became big in the 
Yeah, yeah. 90s. So there was, I wanted to talk about a few of those actually. Okay. So I pulled Perfect. a bunch of examples of them, but I really, there's, I really wanted to focus on ones that have some sort of live action element because there's so many that are basically just like in browser and are basically just sort of video games, but they're using the tools that you use every day, which adds a surreality to it. I really wanted to focus on ones that have like a live action component, but one that is, uh, I think, entirely web-based was uh, when AI was coming out. Um, They did one uh, called The Beast, um, or it eventually became known as The Beast, which was super ornate and at one point had 3 million players. And it was only supposed to last a few months, but people kept it alive through the community for... Uh, a long, long time after the fact, and it sort of inspired all of these other events to to come into play. Um, one that I want to talk about is Why So Serious, um, which was based, uh, obviously, as a Dark Knight um, one. Um, it's huge. It had tons of mixed online and live events. Pe- they would encourage people to do like essentially flash mob stuff, like go out and, and, and march in your street for uh, for uh, to elect Harvey Dent, like stuff like that to sort of encourage people to like get out there and uh, almost do promotional work for the studio. But the, the reward back to you is it you, you're sort of being given this Batman experience, like you're pretending like the town you live in is Gotham. Um, another one that sounded really cool was this was for the Beijing Olympics. There was one called Find the Lost Ring. And it's in six languages. But it's not that they took one set of instructions and translated into six languages. They took one set of instructions and, bi- and, and bifurcated or septifurcated. <laughs> they split it into six pieces. And you had to communicate. They with try from- bifurcated. <laughs> they try, try, try bifurcated. Thank you. I, I, can, I can do that math. Um, it was huge and had a mix of online and live events. And you had to actually like um, – communicate with people from a different country than you and use use your you know i can speak uh mandarin and this person can speak primarily speaks cantonese but they can also speak mandarin and then this piece is in mandarin so we can use that to sort of like mix our knowledge knowledge together there's one for bioshock 2 then it called something in the sea that involved going to beaches and you'd find like strange washed up artifacts um and then there was just a a good dlc (laughs) i love bioshock 2 I do, but the, but, but the DLC is better. Uh, Minerva's Den. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really great. And then uh, Nemesis was another one that it wasn't related as a tie-in in, in, in event, um, but it was intended after all of these, and it launched in 2020, a uh, bad time to launch. Um, it, it was intended as like a two-week inspe- experience involving actors who might even help you with puzzles. This is supposed to be like getting us closer to the reality of the game and the movie, the game, because um, I have a bunch of other examples that are in uh, literature going back to 1903 um, of these sort of uh, similar sort of events. But the deal is literature, you can write whatever you want. It costs nothing. In real life, um, there's a lot of cost involved. There's a lot of uh, financial and uh, legal risk involved in putting people's mm-hmm. lives at risk. And so in real life, you, you never see anything like you'd see in the game, in the game. Um, and that's also why they usually avoid live events, because live events are expensive. Hiring actors is expensive um, and can co- come off as corny if you don't put the proper prep in. One, and- it's always like getting actors that can you know good acting is like really fucking hard that's why we watch so many movies and tv shows starring professional actors and go oh that doesn't person doesn't seem very believable like 
one of the things that this movie does that I think would be impossible to to get right in real life is that all the actors are delivering uh, amazing performances uh, because they're amazing actors who are being directed by David Fincher. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And uh, uh, in real life, I don't know if you ever participated in um, a Renaissance fair, uh, <laughs> if you've ever participated in a um, haunted house, if you ever participated in a... Um, escape room uh the actors can be pretty bad sometimes and some of that is because they're making like a few bucks more than minimum wage or you know sometimes they are starving actors uh in certain cases um but like the acting can be pretty bad even though that person lives all day invest in their role and that's because uh doing a live performance in front of people is inherently awkward and being natural yeah. about it is incredible would be incredibly hard i imagine yeah, I mean, like in yeah, like in this movie, if if like all of a sudden someone went like, "Oh, where are you going in that cab, Governor?" It's like, "Are you being British? Yeah, I'm trying something new with the role." Uh, you know, <laughs> and that was the that was a few of these. Uh, the 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 improvisational quality has to be done because you can't possibly hire enough actors to cover all scenarios. You have to use certain actors to be like, "Well, why are you here?" And we're like. Because I'm in on the conspiracy and I want to help you out. And you're like, well, it's because they hired seven actors and you went a direction that the script didn't allow for. Uh, uh, I, I think also, that- also, they don't like do eight hours worth of psychological tests on each person playing the game. Uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, they usually just let you in the escape room. And yeah, then if you, you want to leave, they just, if you want to leave, you just uh, break something and they let you leave. Hold on. I'm going to show you three pictures. One of a cow being killed. One of a field of wheat. And... Uh, one of the sky is going to say stuff like commitment and starving and stubborn. <laughs> which, which one most reflects your life? All right, go into the escape room. You have 60 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a thing that I wanted to point you to, Aaron. And so I, I also have some literary illusions that kind of got us here. Maybe we'll talk about them, maybe we won't. But like the one that I want to talk to you most about is um, one – that I think uh, consent is really important to these ARG experiences, and yeah. and, and the prop and, and how complicated consent is because you can't, in, without spoiling it, you can't consent to everything. Yeah, but you need to at least give that initial consent to say I want to participate in this game based on this premise, and let's go. However, there's a piece of media that you and I are very, I think sometimes we're at odds with and I've been trying to like get myself to like for a long time, which is like, but I have trouble, which is any show that involves a sort of prank element. Mm. Because uh, I would say prank shows are in fact the closest that you can get to the game. It's short term. Yes. But without warning, you're dropped into a, a alternate version of reality where you were just going to the mall. And all of a sudden, a man comes out and hands you a bloody object. Or you go to the mall and somebody, it looks like they're fighting. And then it looks like they threw their baby off the banister. Or whatever. Like, these these pranks. Um, and I have a mixed opinion on a lot of pranks. I mean, I, I'm f- firmly against any that are at the expense of, um, like, people making minimum wage. Like, any pranks that are like, oh my god, I fucked with people at Walgreens. I'm like... Please re- rethink your life. Yeah. Um, but, like, you're just walking around the mall and someone introduces you to something incredibly weird. Or you go on Nathan for you looking to make, like, 50 bucks. And then 
he it, he exposes you to like an alligator <laughs> and they're like if you want to yeah like that stuff i don't feel as bad about because like you're you were in, inherently signing up for some sort of strangeness today by being well and out. also like nathan fielder kind of says like look my sh- i say i work at comedy central and my shows especially after the first season like my show or other things i the only time i get a little weird about nathan fielder is like the uh when when he works with like esl businesses like uh english as a second language yeah. stuff where it's like hmm, do they know what you're doing yeah <laughs> yeah do they have the do they have the the comprehension here to like actually be like to be able to tell you to fuck off it's interesting you bring that up though because actually maya and i have been watching a prank show um so when sadly trevor moore died uh from the whitest kids you know uh or la- uh, last year um uh in his obituary i read that he had a, he did a disney plus like kids prank show um, with uh, one of his other writers from Whitest Kids You Know called Walk Walk the Prank. Uh, and so Maya and I checked it out because Maya very much uh, – she's a seven-year-old, but she's also like very much – she's really into pranks even before seeing the show. And I'm not – I don't know if I'm a good parent, but I – even though that can sometimes backfire on me a lot, I still – like, oh, well, you're interested in something. Uh, that's pranks. There's a break show that you could watch. Uh, and it's 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 funny. It has kids perpetrating most of it, but they're like – it's really w- well written and supervised. Um, so it's like, you know, hiring a – they hire a ba- fake babysitter and then there's like a ghost upstairs or something. But, but I get it too. Like because I just – you know, when you're watching some of those and like, you know, these people are having like close to like heart, heart attacks or meltdowns uh, and like they stop it really quick, which I think partly like once it goes even mildly far, which is different than some prank shows like Scare Tactics or other things where it's like, no, the whole point is to keep pushing it. It does get like uh like you said there's a there's a there's a risk there like what if that person has a heart attack like what if like what if that person runs I you know the Zach Braff punk story right I was just about to bring that up didn't oh my God. uh there was uh, one of the members of the staff was uh spray painting his car but they were using like washable spray paint like it was well, he got a, he got damage. a brand new car I actually just read about it cuz I was telling it to Shauna uh literally like uh earlier this week because we were watching walk the prank and I was like, I was like, yeah, it does freak out people. Like, you heard when Zach Braff beat the shit out of that kid. And I went and found the article. This, to be clear, this is not a rumor. There's an interview with Zach Braff where he talks about beating up a 12-year-old and says that he just started pummeling him. And this so. is something that there's a video of somewhere. I'm sure it's Dak Shepard or whoever would say, or, or Ashton Kutcher would say, oh, we destroyed that video after, you know, we figured, after, you know, all the legal stuff was settled out. But yeah. uh, the video is somewhere. It so, probably took yeah. months for them to be able to not – pro- they probably had to hold on to the video for months in order to not violate, like, destruction of evidence. And and during that time, you're telling me one of the staff didn't make fucking copies of this thing that they knew wasn't going to air? I mean, he openly says what – like, it, it is it, it is definitely something that waited a long time to come out. I remember seeing that Zach Braff episode. But if you don't know, so on Punked, yeah, they, he got a, a brand new car, Donald Faison was the guy who was uh, had set him up to be pranked knowing how much he loved the car and he, they came out of this restaurant and it's like a fake spray paint but it looks like it was tagged and they catch the kids tagging it and the idea of the bit was that the kids would run away they were like fast kids but they were like 12 or 13 years old and that they what they did not expect is for Zach Braff to run down these kids catch one of them push him to the ground start punching them now 
<laughs> so fucking insane. Um, uh, but Zach, Zach Bravels will 100% say, like, yeah, I was pummeling this kid. I was furious. He says that it was dark and he had no idea it was a, a child until, like, you kind of see him on the, I guess, the tape of the show. Like, he is getting pulled off. But they kind of edit to make it look like he jumped and caught him. And then Donald Faison, Faison pulls him off. But that was, like, he pulls him off. Uh, I've seen, the like, a, a still of that where, like, Donald Faison looks horrified. <laughs> um, and, like, you know, when he I was did watching. This. <laughs> yeah. Well, but also, like, he's watching him punch this kid and he knows it's fake. But he's like, he doesn't know to stop the bit, and they don't. He just pulls them off the kid. But like, yeah, Zach I mean, someone's like, got blood in blood in their 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 eyes, and they're just freaking out. Like, can't and she be like, "You've been punked," and have it be funny. Yeah, it's uh, but it was something that like he's like, I just didn't know they were kids. But it's like, hey, we still chase someone down and beat the shit out of them. Kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. Like it's one of those things that like I'm not totally sure. Like in the moment that a lot of people wouldn't react kind of violently and defensively about it. But like, um, from what I've heard, the viciousness crosses a line from merely like stopping this kid so you can get him in fucking trouble and beating the shit out of him, and that's like the the. The, the 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 sort of uh, altered reality situation is like very fascinating to think about because we're constantly affecting each other's reality in small manipulative ways but someone's signing up to be like we're going to put you through something that is going to be it's going to be ornate there's going to be tons of actors you're going to be put in situations that are sort of strange and you can never quite get your bearings and you're going to feel like your life is being threatened but it's not um it, it it's like the closest i can think about that in, in reality, that's actually not just like combing through emails um, is uh, it is a prank show because I while I, I definitely think ARGs are cool. And like there's sometimes like I, I just did one last weekend that was just basically like YouTube videos and a couple extra documents. OK. Um, and it was very cool, like putting together a story in an order where it's like, there's no particular order to read all this stuff through, but it's about a very scary situation involving, um, I think it's called the Mandela, it's not the Mandela effect. It's called like the, the Mandela tapes or the Mandela chronicle. And it's about like, you know, yeah, basically you just watch a bunch of videos and you read some documents and then you kind of piece a story together and you try and solve the clues for it. And if you don't put any effort into it, you're just like, wow, that was a creepy pieces of a story but it wasn't a story but if you like sit and think about it you can kind of put something together um and you can talk with other people online about like what they thought of and there's like subreddits devoted to individual args like but that's all within the confines of your computer wherein like i think i think one of the problems with online discourse today is i don't think people think that people on the other side of the screen are real I think that's scientifically proven that yeah. people don't think that. Yeah. And I'm not like, you know, I'm not like saying that to to try and be like faux. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not saying that to be like profound or anything, but I, I think like when you involve reality and direct actors in, 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 in person, it all of a sudden get reaches a, a situation where your brain can't sort reality from um, from something that's a fake version of reality because um, we react instinctively. And impulsively to a lot of situations, yeah. especially when not given a moment to think about it. Like my best, my best uh, instincts. I 
if let, let's say like uh like I, I have like five nieces and nephews one of them crawling towards the back stairs of the um my parents house to like fall into the basement um caused me to have the reflexes of a fucking jungle cat over the holidays yeah. and basically no one saw it i closed the door i picked the kid up i redirected the kid back to the carpet and we were fine and it wasn't negligent it was just like i was supposed to be watching the kid i got distracted by another kid who was being like annoying but not dangerous and then i turned around and i was like and the kid like almost crawled their way down the stairs and like that level of reaction time is is some somehow subconscious it's somehow the animal or lizard brain or whatever something is happening subconsciously that's like pure they're like yeah i i do not have access to those reflexes when i'm uh playing pickup basketball with my friends <laughs> uh i just don't <laughs> well what's funny so i this is a long time ago so maybe they've discovered this isn't true but i do remember like 10 15 years ago that i'm reading this like study or some findings that they found like from a neuroscience perspective that was like hey one weird thing that we've noticed is that like when you go to move your arm your arm starts moving something like one one thousandth of a second before the brain impulse like shoots out from your brain to go touch your mate. It's like one one ten one ten thousandth of a second or something. And so like part of this paper I was reading was like which which is very weird because theoretically, why would your arm start move start moving if your brain hasn't told your arm to start moving yet it seems it and, seems reversed to how we think of it where like i tell my i tell my brain to move my hand and my hand moves i just yeah. did it i just did it to sort of like il- illustrate which no one can see but like that we think about it inversely to that yeah and so one of the things this article was like positing is like how much has humans developed like the concept of free will and the ability to control our thoughts and feelings and actions or how much has our brains like built a giant justification machine so that when we do things instinctively, we look at that and go, oh, yeah, no, I'm moving my arm to get my my pop right now. Or like like we basically just then justify all of our actions in real time to trick ourselves into thinking that we um, are doing it out of free will. Which is terrifying because of the consequences in reality yeah. and how, you know, all of us are – any one of us uh, with the uh, physical capability um, and the money and time could go out and get a license and get a car or go out and get a gun without a license um, yeah. and enact um, crazy shit based on the whim of a second. And we've all and, – and like all of that ties into also the whims of, of the second where it's like – uh, that feeling uh, that I think a, a lot of us have where and it's not just I, I found this out recently that it's not just people that have depressive issues, but everybody uh, thinks about uh, when you're standing on the edge of a cliff or you're standing on a bridge, everybody on Earth apparently thinks, well, what if I jumped in even for yeah. a 15th of a second? Yeah. And, and those sort of intrusive thoughts paired with uh, a nervous system that is reacting perhaps without much of our involvement. Um, and like even the way we like gesture 
Um, we make hand gestures when we're talking, those of us that have that disease. Um, none of us think consciously about that. That's just our hands start doing something to sort of indicate something. And, you know, we, we very often can start sentences and end them without really knowing where they're going. Like a lot of life is sort of. Yeah, that's uh, called this podcast. It's called this. Po- the entirety of this podcast is me starting at the being like, well, it's my time to think uh, my time to talk. And then I start talking and then uh, I get to the point that I wanted to make. Um, but like a lot of our lives are sort of unguided and we're kind of honed down what we consider uh, pathways of control. Um, and then we can, we, we ver- people very much pride themselves on being self-controlled and people very much pride themselves on having sharp minds. And the reality is that all of this is chaos. And that doesn't mean that you like lose culpability for these actions. Yeah. Even though that's an important point, some of this stuff has some of this stuff. It's not fate. It's just that your body did the thing. (laughs) Yeah. And and so, I mean, so much of like understanding that you are culpable for your actions is working to develop techniques uh, or therapy, like work on the therapy of like all of the stupid reactions that your body does that, you know, are harmful. Like, anyone who has kids uh, knows that feeling of, like, um, like I just want my kid to go to sleep. Or, okay, that, you know, I've asked them not to do that for ten times. And there is just, like, a rush of just, you know, like, it's it's kind of like the way I would put it into words. But, you know, do not put it to my kids this way. But, like, it's your brain just going, I just need you to stop right now. Like, you know, it's just everything, like, compressing in on itself in, like, a little mini implosion. And, like, you you work to make sure that that doesn't come out that way to a fucking kid or, or an adult, for that matter. But adults tend to, like, not, not hit that little part in your brain because uh, unless they're, like, fucking purposely trying to be a dickhead to you, like, you know, no adult, like, throws their you know, uh, thing of water on the floor 20 times yeah. or something like that. But like, you know, instead you, you work very hard to channel it into like, okay, well, if you can't have this right now, let's just take it away until you're, you're ready to play with the thing without, you know, smashing the cat with it or, or something like, like that's how you have to figure it out. But like, yeah, that rush of feeling of like, I, I will end you. <laughs> or whatever yeah. else comes up you know it's 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 non uh it's not voluntary it's that you uh i i think you know the to your to, i think the point you kind of made is like the people that then take those feelings and cause real harm are the people that are like all right let's let this feeling run the day exactly <laughs> yeah. and and that's like and, and that's like something that's kind of i think it's it's something that's kind of scary is how much yeah. work we have to do to not be uh fucking psychopaths um and and how much work we have to do to like break ourselves of bad habits and i'm not even just saying like punching and hitting people though um that's i mean every woman understands this that's the reason yeah. why women are afraid of men who punch walls it's because yeah. They're not saying, oh, man, that guy's really good at punching. I better not get on his ire so he decides to punch me. It's that 
the the man reacted with anger and violence in a way that was lashing out as opposed to um taking a moment of reflection or whatever it takes to like take or like screaming into a pillow or punch you like if if you're the type of person that needs to like punch to get you know how do you do it in a way there's there's you know that that gets gets it out in a way that like yeah isn't like oh shoot i broke i put a hole in the wall again yeah and the way to get it out is usually counterintuitive the yeah. real way to get it out is usually counterintuitive to punching walls because you punch a walls and then some part of your your animal brain is like, well, we're in survival mode now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the other example that I think is less scary is um, everybody, I think, or most of us at least, uh, at some point in our lives, we're like, I have a big job interview coming up or I have a big thing coming up and I have a potty mouth, I should try and say yeah. fuck a bunch so that I don't say it later. But in reality, it does the inverse thing where yeah. you're, uh, as it says, you're, uh, you're training your body to be able to like react emotionally with uh cursing which is something that it's just a it's it's that is a, that is a piece unlike you know punching walls or whatever I, I don't have that but like punching walls or whatever i would i would work on breaking myself out of that with yeah. the swearing thing i'm just like it's, it's not really worth it. yeah it's, it's, i'm not like using it to attack people like like we say to our kids, like yeah, you can say fuck, just don't call someone stupid. Yeah, yeah, no. it's 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 uh it's it's how you call our language, and I don't particularly care about offending. Um, you ever you ever let's uh, you ever punched a wall? Uh, once. Yeah, it was very scary. I, was- I have once too. It was yeah, it was uh, I was in high school and was um uh I my my dad tried to ground me from the summer for the summer. <laughs> That's yeah. that's a that's a that's a big consequence because big consequence long. it lasts like a month and you know like it was that feeling of like can you, like I was going into my senior year I felt like my life like you know I was like my life doesn't exist anymore and I just remember walking to my room and I uh, I punched the door open to my room um, and then I got yelled at how I now owe them three hundred dollars for a door. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> not not a good way to express yourself. God. Yeah, I um I got bad news about something over the phone and I punched a wall when I was in high school and uh I was it was a big deal to me at the time like the the thing but um like that was something that scared me. I was like yeah. I, I'm not uh, I pride myself in not being a violent person. Like that's something yeah. that like and and it's not I I you know uh, I've never thrown a punch at a person. Yeah, it's it's not it's not the way I, I behave, but like all of these things are sort of wrapped up in the idea that like we very much have to um we very much have these like a, a certain lack of control in our lives and people like Nicholas Van Horten um consider themselves fully in control of themselves fully rational animals they like to have everything everything in its place um and he he worships the 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 bible of of capitalism in that uh if this thing makes uh two pennies less than this thing it's inherently useless to me yeah um if this thing doesn't meet the perfect qualifications for what I have set as my goals in my portfolio, then it's useless to me. And uh, the the thing about this movie that I you talked about it having a big gooey center. The thing about this movie and the reason that the ending works, um, I have some issues with it. 
but they're more technical issues than they are like technical script issues, plotting issues. I mean, this, this is definitely a movie that you need to not like. This movie does provide you a, enough of lip service of like, oh, if like a character at one point saying, oh, I'm glad you did that because if you hadn't done that, I had to do this. Like, like they had worked out like this wasn't a. They weren't uh, expecting chaotic elements that were out of their control to always do the thing that they expected, but they knew him well enough to ha- provide paths for everyone that, like, if he does this, does this, then we do this. If he does this, then we do this. Here's like here's the three things we think he's, he's going to do. Logic. But, but the, yeah, but there is a still yeah, it's choose your own adventure logic. Like yes. we know he's going to do one of these two things. We just we just aren't sure which one. So we provided a story path. Uh, for each one, but there is a part, and like you have to, you know, just kind of turn off the part where you want to go back through and like nitpick. Well, how did this happen? Because this movie does would not survive that, and it's a waste of your time. Like if you can't, you know, go uh, like I'm going to not, I'm not going to be a cracked article. I'm not going to be cinema sins and enjoy what this movie's trying to do. You're going to have a good time. If not, you're going to fuck it. Your head's going to explode. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that the. This is a movie that very much works if you emotionally engage with it on the level that the protagonist is engaging with it in a moment. 100%. Because the thing that's interesting about Nicholas is that he's like created his life as a delicately constructed simulation in and of itself. Like he has he has taken his reality and removed removed enough variables that he knows generally how his day will go without even speaking about it. So one of the things, there's a few moments that really stood out to me. Um, his ho- It's his birthday. His housekeeper prepares him a burger and fries and a champagne bottle and, and yada yada. And, and, and there's a shot, a great Fincher shot of him pulling out of the oven and it's in this neat little box and it's on this neat little tray and he's even like performing the neatness. It's not that she just did the neatness and he's like, you know, a messy guy. He's He's keeping the neatness going through the yep. meal yep, and the precision. And then at one point, he gets a shirt purposefully ruined. Uh, it, it's ru- not on his purpose, but at the purposes of the company. Uh, yep. Gets ruined by a pen exploding in his pocket. Um, unseen forces, without him asking, and are able to, while he's in the air, get three shirt options for him in the limo when he lands. Yeah. Without him asking. He didn't say a fucking thing. And then there's a hint early on in his first conversation, which, by the way, talking about Michael Douglas, like the fir- well, as soon as he started talking, I'm like, I could watch this movie for four hours. Like Michael yeah. Douglas's voice is so fucking good. It's good. It's great. I mean, yeah, this movie's 130 minutes and does not feel it at all. No. Um, and uh, his secretary assistant, he has one one assistant who is clearly like more senior. Commander Shelby from Death uh, of Both Worlds, Star Trek Next Generation. Something you know now. Yeah, I recognized I recognized a few of the actors in this um, in a way that like was very satisfying because um, it's a movie that um, David Fincher knows how to cast him well. <laughs> um, one of those uh, assistants is clearly a little bit more senior and yeah. one of them is brand new. Um, and it, and it really leads to this implication that his, if you're, if you do not fit in your, in his simulation, you are ousted from his simulation. So he is firing assistants and secretaries as needed constantly to keep his measure of control. But what he really wants is someone like his father's housekeeper, um, who knows his systems of control and can feed them and maintain them. And his ex-wife didn't fit into this sim. 
Like she she didn't she she didn't work, so she was ousted from the simulation. Um, and he is someone who's he's not. The game denies him control over and over again. It keeps throwing him off. It keeps it, it keeps creating systems of um, curtains. So that's an ARG term. Yeah. Uh, Curtains obscure the puppet master. The puppet master is the pe- person or people running the system. Um, and the curtain is fully obscured after the rabbit hole moment, which is another term, um, which the movie directly <laughs> directly uses uh, the Jefferson Airplane song, um, White Rabbit. Um, and uh, yeah. the first object he finds is... So here's really quickly on... I, I know we need to get in the plot. Um and that's probably a better spot for it, but in case we don't come back to White Rabbit, White Rabbit's such a good song that it's overused in every movie, and every time I hear it, in the use, used for the exact same purpose, like in every goddamn movie, I'm like, this is so good. I, I dude, I totally agree, because it's in Matrix uh, Resurrections too, and uh, I, 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 I got such it's a It's in bug. so many movies where someone's like, holy shit, what is happening to me? And it's like, every time, it's like, yeah, why would you use another song? Because this, this works every time it gives me like a buzz when i start to hear it and i'm like why does i watch the credits because they play it again after i I, I was like i'm gonna watch the whole credits. same uh but rabbit hole is actually a term in args not not uh not a big surprise it's the first object that sort of draws your attention to the simulation um you know going tumbling down the rabbit hole um and it's the clown and the tv show talking to him um and uh, beyond that, it follows the rules of this is not a game. So uh, T-I-N-A-G is the acronym they use. Um, it's a common device. It obscures the whole process, even where the curtain is or what the PM is. And is this is this a game or was this a big con? And I'm bringing all this up now to sort of talk about ARGs because like he is he the system denies him control. And so he consciously tries to beat the game. He constantly tries to pull back the curtain. He's constantly trying to find the even references the Wizard of Oz of pulling back the curtain and seeing seeing the wizard. Uh, And he's unable to beat the game. He literally has to be he he literally abandons his life before he'll he'll um, be able to beat the game. And, uh, you know, he tries to break the rules by bringing in cops to end the game and raid the headquarters, but, ah, oh, they're a step ahead. And the last thing I want to say kind of on this is that, like, <laughs> this is the sort of character that is it, – it's a Scrooge story, but this is the sort of character yeah. that wouldn't go tumbling down the rabbit hole. Uh, he would hire a contractor and build scaffolding and an elevator and a series of escape tunnels. Like, he would never go down the rabbit hole. He wouldn't tum- even know it exists. He'd have someone else – take care of the rabbit hole for him before it ever gets to his attention yeah someone someone come to be like um yeah i met the mad hanner i got small and then it was big for a little bit and he'd be like did it affect productivity because if so you are fired (laughs) it's like but i stopped i was the rabbit hole i don't care get out armin Mueller stall who's also in x-files fight the future Uh, who's also in uh 13th floor Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is another I mean, movie about a changed rea- reality. But it doesn't use White Rabbit. They, I'm sure there's a techno remix of White <laughs> Rabbit in, like, the second half of the credits. You know when they change songs, like, a minute and a half in? Oh, yeah. Little glitch, little glitch appears on screen. <laughs> Wait, am I still in the 13th floor? <laughs> That's what everyone was asking the summer of 1999. Yeah. They were asking, am I still in the... Guys, what if the real world is actually just the 13th floor? (laughs) (laughs) So do you want to take me to the 14th floor 
of this building and go to the uh, consumer resources services. Consu you want to take me to the 14th floor of that building and take me to consumer re recreation services, Aaron? I don't know how to tell you this, but I moved to the 12th floor because that's my business model. Just not the 13th. so it has a name. Oh, yeah, it's got an email. Okay, yeah, I, I know the exact name. Uh, isn't that what the U2 song is about? Is it about the person that lives on a place with no name and their inability to get mail? Where the fuck do I send this package? It's really hard come tax time because, like, your W-2 doesn't arrive. and Yeah. Yeah, they just go, oh, give it to Barry. <laughs> Whatever Bono's real name is. <laughs> Um, yeah, his real name is Barry Sonnenfeld. <laughs> but he records under Bono when he's being a cool guy. Well, at least in one medium, he makes good work. <laughs> uh, he has a cool wig. Um, but uh, I was going to say, uh, the plot of the game. So we're introduced to Nicholas, Nicholas Van Orton, who in a very uh, succession-like uh, opening, we see... Um, sort of super eight uh footage of him as a kid and this palatial massive uh estate that he lives on and yeah. he will live in in the movie and it's sort of a castle like mansion um and there's a hint of sadness here um not just because it's nostalgic and nostalgia usually has a hint of sadness because it's you know the past that, that uh you can't get back um but uh, he's sort of haunted by the past, and this is setting up the idea that uh, the past is constantly, um, constantly sort of haunting him. And um, his, uh, we're introduced to Nicholas uh, Proper uh, when he's going through a sort of typical, typical work day. Um, Just everything seems miserable. Like this is the type of movie. Like the nineties. The nineties. Yeah, but the nineties did this a lot. Where it's like, if I ever work in a fucking office someday, like you know, take me out back. Yeah, even though he has like five hundred and six hundred million dollars, like it's it's like you know he's 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 miserable. Um, well, and he's I mean he's especially miserable because like we find out later, like I mean he goes home, he watches the same news hour, he sits in silence by himself, and you're like. What kind of life is this? Yeah, he's he, on his birthday. He goes yeah. home alone. His uh, his housekeeper, who I think is the closest he has to like a mother or friend figure who's reliable. They, they, they share three sentences. Yeah, they share three sentences, and uh, she's not even around for him to uh, you know uh, eat his his burger. He eats no. his burger and his bottle of champagne in front of uh, a projection i know at the time this was a normal size tv but this tiny projection tv and his massive quiet mansion he's all alone um at work we see him as an obsessive penny pincher <clears throat> he's paranoid he's antisocial he talks about hating all of his sort of social social peers um even so even in high society he sort of alienates yeah. himself um and he uh, he works his staff to the bone, and he literally like the next thing, the next project that we're going to see him work on in the midst of this is uh, there's a uh, publishing company run by a guy named Bear, 
um, who that has been uh, underperforming based on projections. And um, in who helped his, found the co- company with his dad. Yeah, yeah. And the idea is that uh, Nicholas is sort of emulating his father, but he's, he's sort of taken the worst pieces of his father and, and has pushed them forward. And uh, what we find out in the midst of all this, because they're kind of shadow in a sort of shadowy sense, talking about his father, <clears throat> uh, his father committed suicide in front of him uh, when they were younger. In front of the, he jumped off the top of the house. That he's found him in the driveway. Yeah. And uh, the idea is that his father was also miserable and lived a similar sort of experience. Uh, more people in the house because he had, you know, a wife and kids. But um, yeah, so it sort of created a bifurcated version of his father where he has um, the son, Nicholas, who's obsessive and tries to take after the father as much as possible. And then there's the other son, played by Sean Penn, uh, Conrad who is a recovering addict um and family family fuck up he's the family fuck up he's yeah he he sort of like knows that he has hundreds of millions of dollars and like nothing can nothing can touch him um he sort of you know bops around he has places everywhere and he actually sort of seems to be enjoying life but also enjoying the 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 horrors of life like addiction and he's lived a rough rough paranoid existence as well it seems like uh one of the last times they connected nicholas got him into rehab yeah um and now his his brother is seems happy and liberated and he is pitching him for his birthday to uh participate in the game um which is uh consumer recreation services and he basically said i paid for this as a birthday present for you um and change my life i have a new perspective on everything yeah and the deal here is that like conrad says like he gives the two or three say the two or three um sort of sentences that you would expect out of uh someone like this um which is like uh he's like yeah i'll call him and then, but his brother knows him, and his brother can push him. And he's like, "No, yeah. you actually need to call him until I need fun. you to say, like, say you're gonna call." Him. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, even with it, that, also though, like, he's right to be suspicious, right? Because this is in some way the same pitch as like the the people in the invitation give to their party guests. Yeah, and and the first thing we hear is that like con- is. Um, Nicholas is is confiding in the housekeeper and is like, yeah, I think he's in some sort of new age cult or something, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, they had a he, he he kind of doesn't doesn't want to do this, but uh, he's he, as he's approaching his forty eighth birthday, which I think is, is it was the anniversary of his father's death. Um, he, it's when his, his father killed himself. His father killed himself at yeah. forty eight. Yeah. And he's like, I got to do something. Uh, and he kind of, I mean, silently kind of says, like, you know, I got to kind of do something. He doesn't actually He sees say an ad. Like, he sees the building. He's like, I guess I'll go in. You know what? If all I have to do is go upstairs in this building, I'll check it out. So he does it. Um, and he uh, he goes in. It's like a complete mess. And uh, it doesn't seem like a professional operation. And uh, he goes through a, a series of like humbling exercises. At one point, one of the guys running the exercise asks him to hold his like plastic bag of Chinese food where clearly like grease is like dripping through the bag. Like he's yeah. he's being humbled immediately. Yeah. And uh, 
he uh, he's forced to do a well, not forced. He uh, opts to continue through the process, which includes a physical physical fitness test, a bunch of very invasive questions, um, all trying to get kind of a profile on him for the experience. But no one will tell him what the experience is. They just says that, you know, it'll, it'll start when it starts, which might be in a couple days. And, you know, let's go. And um, he signs up and then at the gym one day, he overhears two strangers, notably strangers, talking about oh the talking loudly about the game and how they opened up a San Francisco office. But like, you know, the London office is fancier, but they're growing really fast and yada, yada. And he interviews them about it. And they're also shadowy about it. Like everybody is kind of shadowy about what the experience is. And they're very much like you need to experience the game in order to know what the game is. Yeah. Um, They're like, oh, I wish I could go back, right? Yes. Like, if I could go back, it would be amazing. Like, and then he's finally like, uh, one of the people leaves, and the other one's like, you want me to tell you what it is? He's like, you know, John nine twenty two for I was blind and now I can see, and he's like, all right, fuck you, dude. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a real douchebag response. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I want to quote the Bible to you, by the way. <laughs> Instead of answering your question, is an is an asshole. I I also think that the term the game and the way it was advertised, like it, if you didn't know that it was if it was called something else and you didn't know the way it was advertised and this movie didn't have sort of a famous concept, I feel like you could have seen this movie in theaters and and been like, oh, is this movie about a cult? Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the many things like that you the movie does a good job for red red herrings one of the things uh, never mind i'll, I'll get to that in a sec because that's kind of my kind of my grand vision of why this movie is so successful but yeah um, yeah and he uh so yeah he signed up for the game he doesn't know what it's going to begin but one day he comes home and there's a clown clown doll in his driveway it's not like Joe Rogan. It's like an actual clown doll. Uh, yeah, not like a total. Fuck- not like a clown. Yeah, yeah, not like a total fucking clown taking horse pace that Joe Rogan got. Why, why is Ted Cruz in my yard? It's clown. <laughs> it's classic. I got him, man. Why is the entirety of Vote Congress blue, guys? In my, my Vote blue. Get up to the polls. They cannot kick your clown out of the polls if it's laying in the driveway. <laughs> Stay there. Um, so yeah, the, there's a clown, uh, like a creepy sort of uh, clown doll in the driveway, and he for some reason brings it into the house to investigate it. I guess. Um, I guess he, he he realizes it that that this is the. There's also the scene where like he doesn't know how cameras work. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing that's very interesting about this movie is the technology is has aged so kind new. of in a nice way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where he doesn't believe that cameras can be small, but he's being observed this entire time by cam- a camera in the clown and a camera in the TV. And uh, the TV starts speaking to him and his favorite news announcer, which this is just a sh- such a show for us as a rabbit hole. The TV yeah. show that he watches every night. Apparently, this guy is in on it. Um because he starts speaking. It's almost, I mean, it could be like a deep fake situation, but that didn't really exist at the time. Yeah, can you imagine if like Tom Brokaw did two things, report the nightly news and occasionally <laughs> record dialogue for a, for a, for an ARG? <laughs> I that's that that's another thing that leads this to down the rabbit hole of um this is a cult. It's cuz the idea that a bunch of powerful people um 
yeah a bunch of power powerful people belong to this to the point that like even his favorite newscaster is has participated yeah. in this because like you know brian williams would do it he's like all right i'm gonna make up a big story about like how i took down a helicopter in iraq and they're like no brian just read the script <laughs> tell him to find the camera i'm gonna i gotta have some things to say about my helicopter adventures okay think, just let me do it do you think that like brian williams getting to fuck around on 30 rock ruined his brain <laughs> I don't know. What ruins someone's brains? Like, I'm going to make up a story about something that happened to me in Iraq. A thing that I constantly had video cameras following me around for. Yeah, it's weird. But when you're when you're uh, overseas uh, covering a war, very often the people that uh, are taking the risk to be there with you are going to be filming everything. I uh, I killed Saddam Hussein. <laughs> I killed Three. Saddam who say <laughs> three things I want to report stock market down beanie babies back killed Saddam Hussein with my bare hands <laughs> technically I used a goat jaw um, but I did uh, I did rend the goat jaw from its skull with my own hands and then used that to beat Saddam Hussein what to death is I put a big X on the ground and I said, please stand here. And uh, you know that statue you saw toppled on the news? <laughs> I pushed that over. <laughs> Killed Saddam Hussein. <laughs> I went up to Saddam's bunker and I challenged him to a fight. And he stepped out and scanned at power level 5,000. And I scanned at power level 10,000 and uh, pummeled him to within an inch's life and then beyond that. You ever uh, BMX race with the devil? <laughs> I have. You know how many sand dunes? You know how hard it is to go over sand dunes against Saddam Hussein in a desert? Are you familiar with pod racing? Bike? <laughs> I, in other news, uh, they took my midichlorian count and it is very high for a nightly news anchor. <laughs> <laughs> Sabalba died today. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the thing he's like no i did one of those things like the dana carvey sketch where i just record a bunch of things that could happen to go on vacation they aired the one where i said i took i survived a helicopter crash in iraq no we insist we insist that you don't pre-record cool shit that might have happened to you in iraq <laughs> No, I'm going to say that I uh, I survived a helicopter crash. <laughs> I want to do it. Just spitballing here. I'm the king of the world. I'm Brian Williams. <laughs> I want to say I survived it by gripping the prop that was spitting in midair with my steel grip. <laughs> and my massive undulating phallus uh, knocked the skull off of Saddam Hussein's head. Also, I directed most of my daughter's performance in Get Out. <laughs> Famous liar. <laughs> it's crazy they put it back on the news. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, you go, okay, you're getting down to the minor leagues, but you can still report the news, of course. You think we're getting rid of a perfectly good white man? And, oh... Yeah, the 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 fact that they kept they held on to him though was in like I mean, 
It was. I think. They, it was I mean, the, they made it work at like 10 p.m. on MSNBC, which what? is its own special hell. <laughs> Wasn't that also like when they were giving Megyn Kelly millions upon millions of dollars to like have her own show on MSNBC for some fucking reason? Oh yeah, I, she was. I think she was on NBC <clears throat> proper. I think they gave her a daytime show for a little bit. Jesus. Um. Anyway. Anyways. Uh, hey, she never said. Hey. She may have said a bunch of untrue things, but she never said she was in a helicopter that went down, Peter. Uh, yeah, but she did say that her uh, she would have won the uh, Tatooine Cup if her uh, pod hadn't uh, crashed into a uh, massive lizard mound. <laughs> she also famously said that Santa was not black. <laughs> <laughs> she went Boomba and the Poodoo. <laughs> Can you imagine being a, uh, an adult news anchor? Who clarifies to someone that wrote a book about Santa depicting him as a person of color, a fake person, an imaginary person who has depictions across cultures and be like, uh, Santa's not black. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a serious person. She was just reassuring the young white racists of the nation that Santa is both real and not black. Uh, my tooth fairy is not a first generation feminist. (laughs) Oh no! Anyways, what, what's going on with Nick? You mean the Molinator? Yeah, the Molinator. <clears throat> the Molinator. Good, good bit. Um, what, what's going on with this Nick guy? Oh, uh, uh the, so yeah, the, he's, news, the news guy. <laughs> so he he start he's he's just like oh well that was weird. Um, so I'm just gonna go. Uh, I'm just gonna go about my normal day, and then I think the second and third act of the movie kind of blurs together. Uh, it acts as a escalating series of, it takes the first act for him to get and register, you know, through the program. Second and third act kind of, uh, blur together because it's, it's sort of him, um, the escalating series of fucked up things happening to him and him escaping them and then trying to like either break the system or get back to his life. Um, Yeah. And he's like, he's, he's alternately. So the first thing they do to fuck with him is they're like, by the way, you didn't get in the game, right? Like right after they pumped him up because those two people at the health club were plants of the game as we find out later. And they're like, you didn't get in. So then he's bummed about that. And then all of a sudden he gets key and he has all these rules about the game. So then he's pumped up about that. But like, one thing that like all the psychoanalysis tests they did on him, they realized how lonely he was. So like they they put this other person in the middle of it um, who is like he never suspects, even though most of like most of us, I think, of the audience suspect because he's just so desperate. Like now that something is happening that has an element of unpredictability, he is like desperate to share that. Um, with with someone. And so he overlooks like the fact that, oh, this person is probably a, a plant. But yeah, he essentially like accidentally teams up with someone. Yeah, so he uh, he is at he's out to dinner. Uh, a woman spills a tray of drinks on him um, as she's getting fired and kicked out. So a busboy hands him a card. Don't let her get away. So it's like a direct. Yeah, it's directly pushing him. It's like another rabbit hole. It's like directly pushing him to like towards towards the point of the story. Um, he is the sort of person that would like get this woman fired and then forget she ever existed. But because yeah. he signed up for this and he's and he's enticed by the weirdness, he's like, "All right, let's let's go." She sits her down. She's very much playing like <clears throat> aloof. What she are you talking, what he's about? talking yeah. about? And then. 
a series of escalating just crazy shit happens. Uh, a homeless man has a heart attack and then they call the cops and the cops in an ambulance pick him up and threaten to arrest him if he doesn't actually give a statement. He doesn't want to get involved. He's just like, well, I, I, I flagged down a cop. They, everybody <clears throat> takes him to what they believe is a hospital uh, parking garage. And then when they're not really paying attention, the lights go out and everybody disappears. And they're like, oh, those were all plants. Um, yep. They fight their way into a elevator uh, and up to uh, up through the roof of the elevator. They fight through the roof of the elevator to climb up there. They're not like hurting people. Um, yeah. It's just like they, they have to kind of uh, the elevator the- stops like he uses a special key to get it to go. And he's like, oh, shit, I'm definitely in the game. And Christine, uh, who's the who's the, the waitress or supposed uh, waitress played by um, <clears throat> Deborah Kara Unger, who was great in Crash the year before this. Yeah, Crash supposedly got her the role. Also, um, uh, Jodie Foster was possibly going to play that role, yeah. possibly going to play uh, the Sean Penn role. Originally, she was going to play the Sean Penn role. Um, and She would have been really good at the Sean Penn role. And it would have given her something a little different to do that she didn't really get a chance to in 1997 especially. Yeah, and then she ended up having to leave to go do contact. And then she sued the uh, the producers because I, I feel like they had made like an oral agreement similar to Lawrence Fishburne in um, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Like they had had an oral agreement that they would do it, but there wasn't anything written down. And then they just went on with the production without him. Yeah. Um, so uh, that might have been a budget thing um, because, uh, you know, Jodie Foster wanted four and a half million dollars. And I imagine they didn't pay Deborah Unger that. Um, so probably not. I, I, yeah, I imagine a small fraction of that. Um, but yeah, so they end up in like the CRS lobby and it, it, it's sort of like um, they go to a hotel room. Well, they end up in the CRS lobby, they yeah. get chased around, they get all dirty, like, running away from, like, security guards and dogs, and then they're like, fuck, these guys are serious. They go to his office, where he, and they get cleaned up, and there's sort of, like, a cute moment where she's like, oh, yeah, the guy paid me $400 to spill drinks on you, um, and also, uh, like, I thought you were cute. And then she drives away, knowing yeah. knowing that he'll move heaven and earth to find the beautiful woman. Um, and uh, then he wakes up the next day. He never sleeps in late, but he apparently did. And there's evidence at a hotel room that he had some sort of coke sex party. Um, yeah, he's getting all these calls, like, of like, hey, what's going on here? How do you want us to handle this? Yeah, there's there's a series of things that I think are kind of funny because they're like people don't think of David Fincher as a funny director, but there's a series. I mean, Fight Club has a lot of funny moments. Yeah. So does this movie. So does this movie. Yeah. There's a bunch of jokes in here that are like I uh, some of them. I I, I imagine these are all. Yeah, these are all intentional. But like, yeah, there's a series of rich guy jokes in here that are like very funny. Like the toilet starts overflowing when he tries to flush something down it and he just runs out of the room (laughs) instead of turning off the valve at the back, which is like something that like obviously a rich person would have like somebody around to like fix his, his, the clogged toilets for him. He would have no idea how to do that. 
And really then, quick on the idea of Fincher being funny and even like going back to the comparison of Nolan. So like Nolan famously doesn't do commentary tracks. Not only does David Fincher do commentary tracks, but he has some of the funniest, most informative like comedy or commentary tracks of like and he's one of the few directors in an era where I find you know, I stopped listening to commentary tracks, still made time for his movies with commentary tracks, because they were both like funny, light, informative, how he talked about the shots. When he's paired with someone like a Brad Pitt, he's always like very humorous and has a lot of self-deprecation uh, around like what he does in a movie. Um, like the whole thing, like one of the, you know, there's there was a some listicle that was actually very funny about like the best commentary tracks or like the uh, and where it's uh, the Gone Girl one, very famously, where he just spends so much time, uh, like just. Just destroy, eviscerating Ben Affleck in a very funny way for being completely unwilling to wear a Yankees hat. <laughs> yeah, he basically calls him like super unprofessional. And yeah, the bit I think is that he knew this would get back to Ben, and like they like. I think it's I think it's a very well, that's the thing. He is very fun fucking with each other. Yeah. He is very funny, so I'm not surprised, even though his movies are mostly serious, they have, like, very funny moments, because he is, surprisingly, a very funny individual. And that story is way less, um, the, the hat story is way less uh, offensive if you just think about it as two friends that are, like, kind of, yeah. They're, yeah. they're kind of goofing off, so they're taking it further than you would with a stranger. But yeah, with then, the whole framing of, like, I mean, it's be the kind of thing, like, not that you and I are, like, Fincher and Affleck. But, like, you know, if I was doing an interview and I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you know how Peter is. He's completely unprofessional. <laughs> and, you know, we had to shut down production for three days. Like, it's it's that. But people people uh, impart the self-seriousness of other filmmakers of his caliber to Fincher. Where even as early as Seven and Fight Club commentaries, he is, like, very self-deprecating and funny. On and it's also important – an important thing to note here is that um, – uh, directors and actors will say crazy shit in commentary tracks because they think no one is l- listening to it. And yeah. like Ben Affleck, famously, like would showed up to multiple oh, yeah. commentary tracks like drunk, <laughs> and yeah. would and would like just talking shit and making fun of his co-stars during Armageddon. One, I think it is that that one. That one makes me laugh every time where he's like, "Hey, Mike, why don't why wouldn't they train? Uh, why wouldn't they train astronauts to learn how to be oil oil, <laughs> oil drillers?" And he told me to shut the fuck up, Ben. So that's the last <laughs> time we had that conversation. <laughs> It's so good. Oh, I love it. Um, but yeah, like, uh, where is that going with this? Oh, um, but yeah, the, it's it's the sense of humor is very taut here, and, the, and so the rich guy can't can't stop an of toilet overflowing, uh, and then later in the movie he gets a blowout in his car, and he looks at uh, Conrad, and he goes, "Can you change a tire?" <laughs> And like uh, the anytime, anytime that like the world doesn't stop and bend to his whim, he's kind of like either very flustered or just kind of confused because he's like, I'm used to everyone just doing what I said or being creating scenarios where everybody does what I say. Why is everyone being uh, either incredibly cruel or uh, just fucking aloof with me? There's a part where uh, where after he does all the tests to a very funny line. 
um, is where he does all the tests and the, and the doctor who's not – you find out later is not a doctor but an actor. He says something about like unkind and he's like, it wouldn't be unkind. It would be not kind or something like that. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. You're a left brain word fetishist. <laughs> <laughs> Just a great under the breath of like, oh, I, I've already read all your diagnoses, so I know why you just did that. Uh, so so funny, so good. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 fantastic. There's lots of during during this this you're learning more about this character that it, it reviews at the time called him cold, but like I don't think that's true at all because like you're very much connected with his plight, even though he's someone who's incredibly unrelatable. Yeah, I mean, it's that is kind situation of like, where it's like, why would you make your protagonist the most miserable asshole on earth? You know, like, just watch, just read the book. You'll understand. One of, one of the secret successes of this movie is it makes a incredibly unlikable asshole who has no one who sees the movie has in common with. And his his success at the end is like, you know, his his victory at the end, which we'll get to. It's not one of, like, Scrooge, right? Which is, I need to share the wealth and help people more. It's, like, a very mild, maybe I can be a little more, I can be a little less hard on myself. <laughs> and, and, like, but you see that as, like, a major success. The fact that you're identifying with this uh, kind of lonely, Mitch Riz- uh, miserable asshole being maybe slightly less miserable and lonely. And, like, you identify with that is, like, just an amazing trick from Fincher. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that the, the sort of shift that happens here is, and I guess this would point us to, like, possibly the third act, um, is that uh, he trusts Christine even though he has no reason to uh, because he's so lonely that he just needs someone to grab onto. And he's particularly like, like sexually lonely. Like he doesn't have a, a romantic partner and uh, he, uh, she, she tells him it's a con and that he's been robbed after he sort of discovers that she's a plant. Um, and then she basically says like, you know, Conrad is pulled in and the lawyer, and there's like this extra level, uh, extra meta level of paranoia, um, which is, uh, you know, this is not a game. The, the, that's, you know, it, it ups the, it ups the stakes on a metatextual level to make it so he takes it a little bit more seriously. This isn't just people that are doing dangerous childhood pranks. They have a, they are, they have a purpose. And all of a sudden, uh, them driving him in a cab into the San Francisco Bay, um, them driving him in a cab and leaving him to to drown in the backseat of that cab, it suddenly has, there's a purpose to that. Like it's, it's no longer just a rich company being a little bit um, too aggressive with their, their playing. It's now, now it's, it's, it's like, well, they want you dead because they, they took your money that first day and now they're just fucking with you before they kill you. Well, and then it does a double reverse on that, right? Cause he, the he meets back up with Christine. She's like, "There, he took all your money." And he calls a number that's actually them, but he doesn't know it to check his like Swiss bank accounts. And while he's doing that, he's giving out his password over the phone. And every, and they're like, "Oh, your money's gone." And then he gets back to a cabin with her later, and he's like, "Hey, all your money's there." Like his lawyer calls him. He's like, "All your money's there." And he realizes a little bit too late before she drugs him that he, you know, he then gave up his password 
that. Like when he called panic saying that all the money was gone and gave all of his little codes, that's when he lost the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's... Which all makes sense. Like you are uh, – I want to talk – maybe it just makes sense since we're almost two hours in. I think we're going to wrap up the plot and probably go to other points. But like the genius of this movie is that 90s era – paranoid thrillers are all designed like this movie is designed knowing that when it starts giving the hints that actually this isn't a game and they're trying to fuck them out of money and this is a big robbery it is relying on the fact that that is all of these fucking movies the amount of movies that exist from the 70s era paranoid thrillers to the 90s about like uh, a company that seems uh you know, you know, it seems like innocuous or just a general techno thriller of like, oh, you didn't know you were signing up for this and now we've lost everything. Like that is so many movies of this era or even the 20 years before it. And so it is tr- the it is training you to when that twist comes to be like of course this is what this is what else would this be a game they're trying to fuck one of the richest man in the world out of all of his money yeah yeah and 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 that sort of like paranoia on paranoia uh delicately playing with audience expectations i think works until literally the last like six minutes like i think yeah I th- and I like the ending of the movie, don't get me wrong. We'll get there in a second. But, like, uh, really quickly, he's buried alive in Mexico with no money nor passport. He's treated like dirt. He's forced to hitchhike and ask for charity. Like, the, one of the richest men in the world is made to be one of the poorest men in the world. He has to grovel to his wife uh, to borrow her car. Um, <clears throat> and there's sort of this discovery that these people are often actor actors and so even though they were manipulated by the con um, he sees a commercial uh for like tylenol starring the guy rebar james rebar yes yeah um excellent comedic actor uh kind (laughs) of looks like alan alda uh and uh he he like confronts him at the zoo takes him hostage um and he uh there's this amazing sequence where he makes him take him to a because this well, point, first he goes to his home, digs into a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, and and has a gun gets, that he's hidden. It breaks into his own home, which is now up for sale. Yes. Yeah. And we also skipped over my favorite visual uh, earlier, which is that he uh, – somebody broke in his home, spray-painted it, tagged it, not unlike Zach Braff's car, and uh, uh, put in black lights everywhere so that yeah. they could play White Rabbit while he's walking around his fucked up house, which basically looks like uh, a, a like Batman and Robin villain lair at this point. Yeah, very much so. And it's so fuck. It's the best. It's the best uh, uh, sequence in the movie, I think, because it's so yeah. scary. Like you don't know if twenty guys are gonna pop out or if no one's there. That actually happens a little bit before too, because they also put all those videos and pictures of like his dead dad. Yes, right, yes. Fuck with them that time, yeah. Yes, yes. They're they're that, confer- that is terrifying though. I have that in my notes. Yeah, that that whole sequence we kind of skipped over it because it's you know just one more creepy thing that happens. But it's yeah. um them fucking around and home invading him is 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 crucial. So he kind of performs a reverse home invasion um and uh, invades where their headquarters are because he kind of gets a tip that they're on, in this building on this level and. Um, because the company owns the whole building. So they just moved from the 14th floor to the 12th or whatever. Um, yeah. and he 
start he pulls out a gun in the cafeteria startles all of them and it's all the actors all and it's everybody it's it's uh, it's such a cool moment where you realize like oh that weirdo in the bar that was a that was a planned like it's a set it's a really fun trick to just have all your extras um and all your like and and you know named weirdos in your movie all of a sudden just like show up in one scene in a cafeteria yeah. it's very metatextual it's 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 literally just like you're watching the actors eating lunch and then all of a sudden a man breaks through from a different reality that wherein those actors were playing actual characters and is holding yeah. them to the 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 moral standard of of that um of his reality um mm-hmm. And so he starts getting shot at. He runs to the roof. And then uh, Christine is like, where'd you get that gun? It was supposed to be an automatic. And like his gun. He's like, you're supposed to. Yeah, you're supposed to steal. Because at first he's like, go ahead and kill me. Like, you think you're going to be able to call the leader here after like, I'm just an employee. Go ahead. Kill me. And then she does this thing where it's like, wait, where'd you get that gun? That's not one of our guns. And she tries to get him to stop saying, hey, this is sorry. You're still playing this game whether or not you realize that you're still playing it and then like she's like basically breaking kayfabe and um yeah and, and she's just being like hey you are there's real consequences that's a real gun that was outside of our control system every other gun you've had has been fake that's a piece of the game the movie that you just kind of ex- have to accept i that like all the blanks that they were firing were fake it doesn't really make sense but. Well, it's how, yeah, how they get everything to explode. They, like I said, that's the part you just have to accept. Like, yeah, this is this is a movie that I'm watching. But the flip side, I do like the, the more twist. boring version of this movie is makes a little bit more sense that they actually are just doing a con. But then it's just a 90s paranoid thriller. Well, exactly. So when you realize. But here's the thing. It has another great twist that you think is the twist of the movie, because Christine's like it is a, at this point, he's in, you know, full nervous breakdown. And like they drove him to this point, and he's she's like, look, see, like you know, he, there's a there's a fucking metal saw with people with guns that he can see trying to break through the door and and theoretically come out and shoot him immediately. And she's like, it's gonna be con- like it's gonna be all of us. It's a birthday present. It's gonna be Conrad with a birthday present. Just throw the gun away. That's and she's like on the walkie talkie, being like, oh my god, he's got a real gun. Don't come up here. Don't come up here. And you know, the door bursts open, and he shoots without thinking. And there's Conrad with a cake. And, you know, blood starts pouring out of his shirt. He shoots him in the chest. And everyone, like, disperses. And he starts going, oh, my God. Like, you know, like, James Rebar and Christine are like, oh, my God. We're, we're fired for this, for sure. Like, we're going to jail oh. forever, I think, is what he says. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that the thing is, is, like, and then he, he like, thinks about it. And he goes to the edge of the building and he jumps off and it's this very slow, like, lyrical, like, when a character has a sad demise in a movie, he jumps off and it's like, it doesn't do it quick. It shows every angle, sees him floating and you're thinking about his thoughts. And, like, again, that is an ending. Like, oh, this that's a great twist ending, especially for a 90s era thriller. Like, you we, we made the audience think this was a game. Then we made you think it was real. And, oh, look at that ironic twist in this thing that his brother bought him to try to loosen him up. He He's so fucked up. He, he drives himself so far that he ends up, like, killing his brother and then killing himself. He follows dramatic irony. He follows in the legacy of his father on his 48th birthday. 
except there's a massive like a uh, suicide net balloon thing to catch him uh within a big party for him and it's a uh, safety glass like that they use in movies and uh emt an emt comes up to make sure he's not injured and then he um <laughs> and then uh they're like hey like actually like you know don't open your eyes like this can't you know it's just safety it's, bra- glass, it's breakaway glass it's breakaway but it glass. can still cut you it can still cut you um so he uh he gets up and he's just dazed and he like breaks down and and cries and hugs hugs conrad because he finally like understands and he's kind of died and been reborn um and like similar to scrooge like he has a beautiful epiphany where he's walking around the party thanking everyone and reuniting with his wife and her husband i guess um and I like I like the idea of like the saddest version of this where he's like, oh, my God, it was just a game. Honey, you didn't leave me. This guy's just an actor. Just, <laughs> like, uh, Come back and live with me. And she's like, yikes, that was five years ago. I know. I assume that's when the game started because that's when my life went right down the drain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I I signed up for the game, I thought that was just part of the game. Um, which was signing up for the game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I lo- then he goes and kills himself because he realizes his wife isn't coming back to him. <laughs> An eighth twist. <laughs> um, and he like is very thankful for this sort of second chance at life. And yeah. I don't think this ultimately like works logically. Like I don't like he could have jumped I- off of other parts of the roof. Uh, his fall was so fucking far. The the blank. But, but the, they kind the of, James the... Rebar does say that. Like he's like, if you weren't gonna jump off there, I had to get up and push you off, like out of anger for killing your brother. Like they were watching him the whole time. Again, yes, it does it does uh you know you ha- you have to turn off the brain and it's like, okay, we'll wait a second here. But I actually think it works fantastically. I remember seeing it in theaters and being like, oh my god, holy shit. I think it emotionally works, which is more important than rationally works. Yeah. Logically works. Um and uh it's 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 a little too cute and same with Conrad having a squib in the middle of his chest. Like that's it's like a step a little bit like too cute but like you know it's the sort of movie where you've accepted that this organization is planned for everything and as a genius level like he's so predictable that he they have yeah. a genius level uh so you, you have to you have to accept that in the first like 30 or 40 minutes otherwise like the movie just doesn't doesn't really work um i think it's great i think the idea is it's like a scrooge idea it's like he he dies and then he gets to be born again um with a second chance of life and like you know there he's he he in a sense he did do what his dad did he did kill himself yeah. but he was able he to had a literal safety net though yeah and it, but he was able to understand how and and have that moment of regret on the way down and like understand that like his life does have value and he needs to treat people more kindly and he even gets like bears at the party and then he's like you know actually you fucking me over was the best thing that ever happened to me um i love the little moment too where they bring the bill, which is as a, again very funny Fincher joke. Extreme, like, I wrote this down. This is the most Fincher joke. Is that you're like this could cost so much fucking money. There's no way. Yeah, it's like a forty page itemized list that he has to sign at the bottom. And I love how Michael Douglas is like, "Hey, do you want to split it with me?" And Connie's like, "Oh God, yes." <laughs> like, because uh, even even fucking Michael, even Nick 
one of the richest men in the world looks at the bill and his eyes bulge out of his skull. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 one thing you could fault with the ending is that it's about it is like there's a moment early on in the movie where Christine says, oh, is this just like a frat boy like prank? Like I, my night is fucking ruined and my my job is 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 gone because of a frat boy prank. And and she's like, come on out, come on out. And Nick's like, no, I don't think that's how this works. And um, that's. It is it, the ending. Sort of does feed that for a moment, which is yeah. Like this was oh, just like yeah. rich people fucking around with money. Um, yeah, the, the thing is, like, unlike fin- I actually think unlike Fincher's other work that has a lot more going on at the center, I, I, this one has a surprisingly gooey center for such a cold, cynically shot movie, and I think that's very much on purpose. Again, the twist isn't that um, things are worse than you thought or more serious than you thought but it's like things were better and this guy should have just been less of an asshole and stuff like that but the, the, to the my point, point is like that, is that conrad his brother he should have trusted him from the beginning <laughs> yeah um but there is like uh like if you want to like interrogate like what this says like at the end of the day like the the rich asshole who you know uh, you know i'm sure should like probably be in, in prison <laughs> For for uh, rich asshole exploitation related crimes, he le- he de- he learns two things. One, he learns that he has a support system, including his ex wife and his brother. Two, he goes up to the guy that he fired just as like a fuck you game of like I'm gonna win like my dad, Armin Mueller Stahl, and that guy goes, you know what? I'm glad you fired me. My wife's happy. I'm sailing. Like no harm, no foul. And then uh, the you know, incredibly attractive girl is might be interested in him in real life. Like the it work, the movie does work. Like you feel happy at all those things. It just doesn't like you know. Again, showing my you know my hammer and sickle here. Um, it doesn't work if you're like, yeah, but real life still fuck that guy. Um, of course, but the the movies. The movie still sells it as a victory, which in some ways is a complete miracle that you are like, yeah, I'm glad this guy gets to go back to probably committing crimes. Yeah, yeah, that's I mean, he he doesn't at the end of the movie like Scrooge say, I'm going to give up my money and go live humbly and sell that massive fucking make, make the world a better place. What he Help does, sick. what yeah. he does at the end of the movie is there's a moment of. There, he, um, it's actually a brilliant final Fincher shot. A hundred percent. Christine is, is getting in a cab and she says, do you want to come with me? And he's leaving his own party and, Chris, and he's, he, she says, do you want to come with me? And he kind of looks around, he looks up and he has this like little smirk. Cuts to the, the street. He has a little, like he has at a, a high level. He has a little smirk and it's yeah. that he now is, is willing to embrace the chaos of the universe, even just a little bit, um, instead of, uh, you know, doing what, uh, he is, he is supposed to do, um, and what his father would have done. His father would have never left that that party. He's, he's embracing some of the chaos, the universe and saying, yeah, sure. Again, interesting. So I took the ending shot that lingers and then does the same shot at the alley outside the building that he did earlier as he got into the game a little bit differently. I took it as him looking around 
mildly unsure if this was still part of the game. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. That. But I think. I think that's definitely it. I think that he's oh, okay. saying. You know, maybe this is part of the game. But if it is, like, it's worth it because I, I. I'm ready to do it. I'm yep. ready to take on the chaos of, of the world. I'm. I'm not gonna. Um, you know, go back inside where I'm. I, I feel safe. Um, I'm yeah. gonna. I'm gonna chase after Christine and see see what goes down this road. And you know. I said earlier that uh, you know Fincher is better with his his women characters than than uh, Nolan, which is absolutely true. But um, the one issue I do have is that Christine kind of um, she kind of is a, a woman who represents things more than she is things. Oh yeah, and 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 and, and that's also like true Man, manic of, pixie game girl. Yeah, I mean that's kind of true of Nicholas too in a sense. But like Nicholas has a full full character arc. She's. Um, uh, 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 you literally know nothing about her. She is a uh, she's she's more chaotic. She's willing to walk out on her job as she's being fired and just be like "fuck you." Like she's she is she is wild and she's full of id and she is like compassionate and she's willing to like um she's like undressing in front of him in one scene like after just knowing him for a few hours like she's and in a way that like makes him shy which if it makes michael douglas uh fam- famous poonhound michael douglas, uh shy sexually shy um it's got to be it's got to be a little bit uh immodest or whatever um you want to what term you want to use um yeah he's he's like hey you don't show me your naughty bits unless it's dinner time <laughs> He's only interested if it's dinner time because <laughs> he likes to live dangerously. Yeah, he, he turns really quickly into the plant from Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> Feed me. Feed me. Feed me. But yeah, uh, they, uh, what I was going to say is uh, she, she kind of does represent uh, the wildness and the chaos of, of, of systems. Uh, and he sort of represents rigidity. Um, and it's a little bit reductive and, you know, maybe a little bit just like speaks to like a male, uh, a couple male writers. Yeah. I don't know if you look, looked up who the writers are. Um, I did. <laughs> they're like, originally this was supposed to be directed by Jonathan Mustow and it, yeah. his two like key guys were supposed to write it. Yeah. The um, writer's a Catwoman. Catwoman, um, um, Terminator 3 and 4, which 3 is... 3 is okay. Okay, okay, good, and probably just okay. Yeah. Um, and then 4 is dog shit. Um, yeah. But they're like a writing duo, and this is 100% their only movie that I would consider... A, a uh, yeah, okay. Fincher did some pretty heavy rewrites with Andrew uh, Kevin Walker, <laughs> according, as well, which, again, is not too shocking. I actually think, like, I think this might be reading a little bit into it, but I think you can take, if you're being generous, to the ending that so many of these movies where you basically get, like, a... Uh, a, a woman character or, or you know a romantic interest who you don't learn anything about except in the way they uh have a relation to your protagonist a you know a, a typical male character and then somehow that person still falls in love even though like again they don't know anything about her you don't know anything about her as an audience member because she really is just a love interest i think you could say Again, is it is it following that archetype and that trope, or is it subverting it, that this is actually a movie where that is literally true. 
because he is spends the entire time having a romantic interest with someone who is playing a part so much so that she reminds him of that at the end like you don't know me at all and then she kind of even forgets where her hometown is when he tries to do the like where are you actually from so again is it falling into the trope that the the handsome leading man ends up falling for a, for a woman that he doesn't that he barely or doesn't know at all, and you as an audience because they didn't make her a real character doesn't know, or are they pointing out that in this case that is literally true? Yeah, yeah, and and I think that like she's been playing a character um in the in, in, to such an extent that you like you can't really know much about yeah. her, um like what was part of the game and what was not, and I think that that's like part of the meta text because he had a real experience with her and then was slapped in the face with the reality of irreality. Um, yeah. The reality of unreality. And that's, uh, that's pretty brutal. And now is his chance. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully this is not an extension of the game. Uh, that would be a few, a few too many levels. Um, hopefully, uh, he gets to actually get to know her, and this is uh, this is coming from a place of genuine interest, and it's not merely uh, an extension of the game. Yeah, I mean, you can also be like, "Oh wow, you're a really good actor. I would like to have coffee with you." Yeah, exactly. Um, I, uh, you know, what the spiritual sequel to this movie is right that I would love to find an excuse to cover on this show. Came out the following year. Spiritual sequel to the game. I mean, it, no one involved in the either movie would would probably cite the other one, but it very much feels like it's tapping into a, a similar vein. I don't know. Uh, one of the few late '90s pre Wes Anderson Bill Murray movies that is actually pretty funny, and that is the man who knew too little. Oh yeah, yeah. Where he thinks he's playing a, a, he, th- a- he thinks it's real. And it becomes real, but it uh, – no, he thinks it's not he real. Thinks he it's thinks it's a he's game, Larkin. which is why yeah. he's so blasé about everything. Yeah, but it becomes real. And that's why everyone thinks he's a professional because he's so, like, uh, calm under the cow- collar. That movie is uh, – I, I, it was a movie I loved as a child and I imagine is miserable. Have you seen it in the past? Yeah, I've seen it. Like, it is – It is. Uh, it's very much uh, taking a, a specific – it's it's kind of like what about Bob, right? Like I still like what about Bob quite a bit, but what about Bob is like what if we fucking hammer the same joke until you are as annoyed with Bob as Richard Dreyfus is, and I think that's kind of what about Bob's success. And this one is doing it like let's have escalating situations where no reasonable human being would think they were still in a game, but this character is almost like a tolerable Mister Bean ass figure who. Mm-hmm no matter what uh is convinced uh it's it's just all part of the whole thing up to the very end like he ends that thinking that he's been asked to uh to join the theater troupe <laughs> uh, if i remember correctly yeah yeah i i uh I was going to say is i would love to find an excuse to visit that because like bill murray did a lot of uh really bad movies <laughs> Um, Terrible, movies, but uh, yeah. that was one that as a kid I loved, and I have not seen in literally, yeah, twenty five. Uh, I don't have, I don't really have much else to say about this movie. Like, it's it's a really like it's it's a movie that I hope gets some rediscovery or critical reevaluation. I guess that appearing in the Criterion Collection does that to some extent, or that it was easier to license than Seven or Fight Club. Uh, because it's this was by like Gramercy Pictures, which are Polygon Pictures or one of those ones that Poly- I don't Polygram, think exists yeah. any, 
Yeah, yeah I don't think got, it exists anymore. They get absorbed by Universal, I think, in like 2000. So, like, this was one of the last yeah. projects they did. Yeah. So, I mean, this, but this is like a not just a fantastic like pot boiler and 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 one that really does like even again this is like the third or fourth time i've seen it and it's not like peter and i were talking prior to the show that like it's not like a usual suspects where the thing about usual suspects is like everything you saw on screen literally didn't happen which again is somewhat interesting to discussed from like okay well that's true of all movies so what is it saying blah 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 but like you you are getting a different understanding of the movie that you've seen throughout it like has different levels like you've entered level one and now you think it's this and now you've you know you enter level two and it it equals this and somehow unlike almost every other like techno thriller of the 90s ends in like a very like satisfying place without like dramatic irony or somebody having to sacrifice themselves or like um or a convoluted plot that like it's like oh they just wanted his money like they're fucking hans gruber okay like it's 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 a lot of fun it's super intense it's amazingly directed it you know the thing about fincher is he has so many fucking agreed upon masterpieces that some of his lesser works get passed over where this one absolutely is still a four and a half star movie worthy of your time no uh yeah this is definitely one of those uh fincher projects wherein the technical mastery of it is is what's most impressive but like it actually like a lot of fincher project projects it's like he's attracted to these things because it speaks to it's it speaks to how movies are made and how movies fuck with your expectations it's not merely that uh, he uh, wanted to make a twisty turny thriller uh, and really shock audiences. He was he was interested in something a little bit bigger than that. The whole concept of, of it as a, a puzzle box that you get to solve along with the the protagonist is particularly fun, and it's no question why this inspired. Yeah dozens of these of these ARGs that directly reference yeah. um, oh, directly yeah. reference the game and make and make allusions to it like it's a piece of me- like a, it's a piece of literature um it's pretty it's pretty cool and i like that the that um criterion decided to give it the sort of treatment that it gives sometimes to um paranoid thrillers or pieces of genre that you know in, in their time were just seen as like a, a a piece of entertainment and this movie did all right in terms of the box office um but they, but they like to highlight it and yeah. say, like, these are movies that we're actually going to be wanting to talk about uh, 10, 20, 30 years from now, which is not true of, like, a lot, a lot of the mindfucky thrillers of this era. Um, it's not, it, like, the movies yeah. that were inspired by Sixth Sense. We don't talk about this movies anymore. Like, uh... <laughs> yeah, you think we're going to do, like, the 13th floor? <laughs> forgot yeah i i do kind of like that we did the 13th floor instead of doing matrix reloaded or revolutions movies i really like well we kind of had to do it because i needed to atone for me saying that i thought the 13th floor was better than the matrix spirits like i needed to admit it like no yeah yeah no one remembered it except me, but, like, sometimes when you've committed a crime, you need to unburden <laughs> yourself with the guilt. Um, well, yeah, I hope you feel unburdened uh, back then, and I hope right now you feel uh, unburdened as well. So, um, Aaron, yeah. what are the games we're going to be playing? Speaking of, of being burdened, uh, we're going to watch Funny Games, 
uh, an episode that is rounding out the month because twice Peter and I have been like, do you really want, do you have the energy to do funny games this week? And both of us, one of us who loves the movie, me, and one of us who potentially, potentially hates the movie. Uh, has not seen we're, we're actually covering the American remake which I think is the the stronger of the two uh, from a performance standpoint uh, but yeah we just have who has the energy to watch funny games in, in this <laughs> the year of our lord 2022 um, but we're gonna try to do it and uh, maybe we'll I mean there's there is definitely a possibility Peter where I rewatch this for the first time in like 10 years and I'm like never mind I fucking hate this <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm too miserable all the time anyways to 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 embrace funny games like I did in like 2010 but uh we'll see I'm excited to talk about it it is I I I really love uh it was my first Haneke um and I mean it definitely is miserable but I, I think it's interesting what it's doing. And Peter thinks it is doing the same thing, but does not think it's interesting. He thinks it's annoying, right? Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh I think that's the pitch. Alright, well we'll talk about those those funny, funny, goofy games those next goofy, week on Silly Goofy Guy. This is a silly goofy guy. With his silly goofy games. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small And the ones that mother gives you Don't do anything at all Go ask Alice When she's ten feet tall And if you go chasing rabbits And you know Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs)